Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Prithee, what jackanapes wouldst hammer on the door of a modest, God-fearing pilgrim of the Massachusetts Bay Colony at this unholy hour? I know that thou art a good man and true, which is why I come to warn ye of the nefarious satanic plot against our holy colony. Those devil-worshipping tribes amongst us, which I'm very, unfortunately, for the sake of historical accuracy, going to call savages, because that's how people in this time and place talked, though I feel really awful about saying it truly. Anyway, these savages... And I, I'm really hoping you can see the air quotes there and won't judge me too harshly as a person whose ability to see the humanity and his fellow people, regardless of ethnicity or culture, is deeply limited by his time and place. To get back to the point, they're conspiring to drive all us Englishmen and our families back to the sea. Arm yourselves and stay vigilant. I will. But please try to come up with a less pejorative name for those demonic hordes, would you please? That S-word really makes me uncomfortable. But still, to arms! Who disturbs this Christian house at this deep hour of the night? My deepest apologies, sir. I come with a warning. Foul witchcraft be afoot. No. The devil is loosed on God's own Massachusetts Bay Colony. Tis true. Young Abigail Williams has accused Goody Proctor of witchcraft, conspiring with Beelzebub himself and bringing the evil demon religion of a servant. And just to be clear, when you say servant, that's just a nice way of saying slave. Uh, yes, I suppose. Uh, yes, vile black magic. Though it's also possible Abigail is just mad because she had an affair with John Proctor, Goody Proctor's husband, and wants the wife out of the way so she can get that fine hunk of Puritan man meat all to herself. You have a surprising amount of knowledge about this situation. As God is my witness, it may be knowledge, or it may be half-remembered plot points from a high school performance of The Crucible. Either way... We must hang the witches. What violet intrudes upon my family's peaceful slumber at this ridiculous hour? Deepest apologies, but I come bearing terrifying tidings related to our, uh... Peculiar institution. By peculiar institution, of course, you're referring to the black euphemism we use to refer to an exploitative system in which our plantations deliver untold riches for a small planter class by breaking the backs and stealing the labor of human beings we have the nerve to claim we own like livestock. Yes, that's the one. Ah, proceed. Well, 
For some reason, it appears that those we dragged across an ocean, regularly lashed with the whip, and whose children we sell away. Wow. When you hear it out loud, we're just the worst people ever, aren't we? Well, these ungrateful slaves don't seem to like this situation and are conspiring to rebel. Why, I never! We must crush the slave rebellion! Rebelling against the crown and conspiring to steal away the colonies. We must crush the revolution. Loyalists are conspiring with the crown to steal away our freedom. We must crush the Tories. The Masons are conspiring to destroy the newly formed Union. We must crush the Freemasons. That damnable James Buchanan and his Democrat Irish Catholic hordes are conspiring to hand the 1856 election over to the goddamn Pope. We must crush the Catholics. I heard Father Coughlin on the newfangled wireless radio say that the U.S. is becoming enslaved to a conspiracy of Hebrew infiltrators. We must crush the Jews. Mr. President, the Democrats, the Blacks, the Jews, the media, on your entire enemies list are conspiring to kick you out of office and undo the 1972 election. We must crush, I don't know, like three quarters of the voting public. Holy shit, is there any period of our history where we didn't think there was a conspiracy out there that desperately needed crushing? I presume you've realized the answer is a big old no, but in this tumultuous violence and disease-wracked election year, we thought it was pretty important to take stock of our current situation through the lens of the conspiracies that have roiled American political life since before there was even an America. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain. May I say that Mr. Jesuit talks about this being cruel and reckless. He was just baiting. He has been baiting conspiracy theorists here for years, requesting that they, before making up implausible theories, get all of the facts straight and actually look into disconfirming evidence. Now, I give this record... And I want to say, Mr. Jesuit... I beg your pardon. Let us not entertain this madness any further, Senator. Let's... let's... You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? So, your little post-themed song skit this time casts you in the heroic role of Joseph Welch, scourge of the character assassinating conspiracist and drunk Senator Tailgunner Joe McCarthy? Oh... Yeah, yeah. A little self-aggrandizing? Like, even for you? Let's not focus on that, Dana. Let's focus instead on how exciting our new topic is and welcome in our listeners, new and old. Fine. Deflect away. It's only adding to your eventual therapy bill. 
Welcome, one and all, to the first flower of what we're thinking of as phase two of the paranoid strain. In our new incarnation, we're your bi-weekly supplier of short, sweet segments that over time explain in detail all of the crazy ideas that frequently worm their way into our shared experience of reality. We do this so that you can better understand why your greengrocer, your COVID-19 swabber, and especially that old friend from high school who just reached out on social media to see how you're doing, and how is she? Oh, fine, thanks. I mean, things didn't work out with Steve in the end, but you know, no real regrets. There were some good years, and it's been a learning experience. And after all, we did a great job bringing up Kaylee, even after things went south between us. And sure, it's hard adjusting to the dreaded empty nest, but you know, it's opened up so much time for new hobbies, and even a new career. And on that subject, have you ever thought about becoming financially secure by starting your own business selling? high-quality essential oils in your spare time to friends and family? Anyway, we're here to explain why those folks believe such utterly bizarre conspiracy theories. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, a man who is gradually, if a tad grumpily, adjusting to sharing a podcast closet with the many pretty dresses of Lady Jesuit. Alongside the interjections of my faithful compatriot, Dana Unicorn, interjections that are, he assures me, both the dulcet and Northern European. The gentlemen of the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and other friends of the show, I'm going to try to help you contextualize our current unquestionably crazy moment within the broader swath of lunacy that has bedeviled our unique body politics for the past 400 plus years. The phase two that we alluded to means that instead of presenting this episode as one or two lengthy sessions separated by a couple of months of production, we plan to put these out as 30 minute or so easily digestible chunks issued as part of a bi-weekly content stream interspersed with interviews, book and film reviews, chunks of older episodes from our archive, and as dictated by current events, periodic that help to explain what's going on when some new and bizarre theory starts infiltrating the mainstream of discourse. But long-time listeners and those with longer attention spans, don't worry. When this is through, we'll put out a full-length version of this episode in all of its multi-hour glory for your extended listening pleasure. With that, to the topic at hand. While conspiracy thinking has bedeviled societies throughout the world in various times and places, it's fair to say that Americans have let conspiracy thinking mold their political ideas and actions since long before we were a country. So we're going to dive deep into the origins and effects that these ideas have had on the currents of American and pre-American political life, starting, of course, with the guys in the funny hats. The Pope? Good guess. But no, the Puritans. As we all vaguely remember from history class, the Puritans were among the first groups of English colonists to move to the New World, settling in the designated region of New England, where it is rumored people with strange and alien accents live to this very day. They are descendants of wicked funny something and uh, known as mass holes. Go Pats! Right. When thinking of these folks, it's important to remember that they were kind of the fringe of the fringe of church reformers in the heady, theologically disputative times of the 17th century. In our research, we uncovered an article in the 16th century journal by Michael P. Winthrop. Never let it be said that we skimp on our research, people. That details a strange incident in 1591 known as the Coplinger-Hackett conspiracy, in which three Presbyterians... We know now that's a really mainstream Protestant Christian denomination. 
But at the time, it was seen as a dangerous sect that stood in opposition to the official Church of England. Yeah, so these presbos got themselves all worked up about how Queen Elizabeth I wasn't converting to the true religion. Which, as it turned out, was coincidentally the exact flavor of Presbyterianism that these three practiced. This failure to convert on Liz's part was, in their view, due to her being unduly influenced by a sinister conspiracy of Catholic sympathizers. Eventually, they decided that one of their group, Hackett, if you're keeping score, was decreed by Almighty God to be the new king of Europe and that the reign of Elizabeth was over. Their key tactic was to announce this in public, and the totally unsurprising response of the authorities was to immediately arrest these dudes, torturing and then hanging the new king as an example to any other wannabe sovereigns. So anyway, the Puritans who would eventually found the Massachusetts Bay Colony weren't quite as unhinged as these dudes, but they were definitely seen as troublemakers by the Crown and had fled to Holland years before in order to avoid official English persecution. However, living in the multicultural society that the for-its-time relaxed attitudes of the Dutch had encouraged in the Puritans' adopted city of Leiden didn't sit that well with the strict theology of the English expatriates. And so, when the opportunity came for them to go off to a supposedly unspoiled, empty wilderness... Empty, that is, if you ignore all of those Native Americans. Yeah, we'll be getting to those folks in just a second. Anyway, they jumped at the chance, arriving in 1628 to build a shining nation on a hill, mostly by claiming land for themselves that was already part of the traditional lands of various Native tribes. In spite of all this, there initially appeared to be a sort of awkward truce between the English and their hosts. Of course, that would unfortunately not last long. Jesse Walker's excellent book, The United States of Paranoia, a book we referenced in the very first episode of the show, does a great job of pointing out exactly how paranoid the people who settled the land we now call the United States were, dating to well before the nation's founding. His narrative begins, in fact, with the state of affairs that existed between the first colonists and the natives, and points out that the indigenous peoples were perhaps the first targets of the colonists' conspiratorial imagination after arriving in their new, quote, promised land. Walker here evocatively spins the perspective of the colonists, incorporating quotes from contemporary writers, to evoke the fear that these folks felt eyeball-deep in a world untouched by modern science, and imagining themselves beset by demonic forces that were a constant worry for the people of God. Here's the story. Satan got here first. He knew he was losing ground to God as the gospel spread through the old world. So he drew a colony out of some of those barbarous nations dwelling upon the northern ocean and promised the pagans a country far better than their own. Those disciples became the Indians, and with those savages as his servants, Satan established an empire in the American wilderness. And there, like a dragon, the Dark Lord waited, keeping a guard upon the spacious and mighty orchards of America. So when the God-fearing colonists arrived, they found a land that was already, to their mind, in the grip of Satan. And not only did they believe the native peoples were tools of Satan, in some cases they believed some among the Indians were literally demons in human disguise, especially when those demons were taking up arms against the colonists. But honestly, it got worse because inevitably, when faced with the restrictive and churchy-as-shit expectations of Puritan authorities, some ostensibly civilized Englishmen moved farther out to the frontier, away from the prying eyes of the clergy and the holier-than-thou neighbors. And just as inevitably, these same dudes got lax about church attendance, stopped spending their time with the English, and worst of all, started trading freely with the natives. As this quite animated and well-informed gent from the Crash Course YouTube channel noted, 
The authorities came down on these reprobates rather harshly. Now, the Puritans had a rather conflicted view of the Indians. On the one hand, they saw natives as heathens in need of salvation, as evidenced by the Massachusetts seal, which features an Indian saying, come over and help us. On the other hand, they recognized that the Native American way of life, with its relative abundance and equality, especially when it came to women, might be tempting to some people who might want to go native. This was such a concern that in 1642, the Massachusetts General Court prescribed a sentence of three years hard labor for anyone who left the colony and went to live with the indigenous people. There was even anti-India propaganda in the form of books, captivity narratives in which Europeans recounted their desire to return to Christian society after living with the Indians were quite popular, even though some, like The Famous Sovereignty and Goodness of God by Mary Rowlandson, did admit that the Indians often treated their European captives quite well. New England's native- All of this came to a head in 1675 when one of the so-called praying Indians... That is, a native who've converted to Christianity warned the colonial government that a local tribal leader was supposedly planning an attack. This man, John Sassaman, quickly came to a bad end, as is detailed in this over-the-top YouTube documentary. Josiah Winslow, governor of the Plymouth Colony, took a meeting with John Sassamon, a praying Indian. Sassamon warned him that Metacomet was planning a major offensive against the English. His goal? To drive them back into the sea. Later that month, John Sassamon's body was found beneath the ice of Assawampsit Pond. His neck had been broken. The English arrested three Wampanoag men in connection to the murder. Another praying Indian testified against them, and in June 1675, they were hanged. The Wampanoag tribe didn't particularly care for the idea that the English were carrying out rough justice on their own kinsmen, who they naturally felt should be under tribal jurisprudence. The dispute eventually led to bloody reprisals on both sides, which the British came to refer to as King Philip's War. Again, handing off to our dramatic narrator. King Philip's War, the conflict that bears Metacomet's Christian name, was the bloodiest war per capita in American history. It shaped our national psyche, irrevocably changed the way colonists and Indians saw one another, and opened the door to Anglo-American domination of this continent. How bloody and costly was this conflict to both sides? Well, in this 1998 lecture by the magnificent historian Jill Lepore, we hear a catalog of the damage recorded by a contemporary colonist. Saltonstall, Nathaniel Saltonstall, the author of, of this account, titles his account, A True But Brief Account of Our Losses Sustained Since This Cruel and Mischievous War Began. Take as follows. In Narragansett, not one house left standing. At Warwick, but one. At Providence, not above three. At Patuxet, none left. Very few at Seekonk, at Swansea, two at most. Marlborough, wholly laid in ashes, except two or three houses. Besides particular farms and plantations, a great number not to be reckoned up, wholly laid waste, or much damnified. And as to persons, it is generally thought that of the English there hath been lost in all, men, women, and children, above 800 since the war began, of whom many have been destroyed with exquisite torments and most inhumane barbarities, either cutting off their heads, ripping open their bellies, or scalping the head of skin and hair, and hanging them up as trophies, wearing men's fingers as bracelets about their necks and stripes of their skin which they dress for belts. Nathaniel Saltonstall's true but brief account of our losses is a standard portrait of New England during King Philip's War. A landscape of ashes, of farms laid waste, of corpses without heads. A place where three-legged cattle wander aimlessly, dragging their guts after them, and Indians strut through the woods wearing belts of human skin and necklaces of rotting fingers. 
It is difficult to imagine a scene that could do more to assault English notions of order. Towns have been razed and blood spills everywhere. Nearly all that was English in Saltonstall's landscape has been destroyed. We can be assured the destruction experienced by the natives was similar. No doubt. So anyway, this was yet another horrible conflict that's part of this nation's bloody history. But the reason we're talking about it now is that though the colonists at the time saw themselves as engaged in a struggle with an organized alliance of tribes under the titular King Philip, i.e. a conspiracy of Indians seeking to drive the English into the sea. As Walker points out, this perspective completely ignores the fact that the allegiance of the native tribes was quite divided. Note that competing tribes fought on the side of colonists against Philip's forces. The English conspiracy view also hugely overstates Philip's authority, which had largely dissipated by the early stages of the war. So the colonists were fighting for their very lives and homes against disparate native groups who were themselves frightened of the encroachments and depredations of these newly arrived foreigners. And while the English imagined they were in mortal combat with a well-organized, singularly driven army of Satan, the truth was that, in fact, they were fighting some, but not all, of the various tribes of Native Americans around them, while other Native groups were in fact allied with the colonists based on internecine hostilities that predated the arrival of the English altogether. And that even among the antagonists, and in spite of the name of the war, King Philip's army was neither a singular army, nor King Philip's. In other words, the English saw a vast conspiracy, instead of a series of related, but largely contingent, violent incidents. Still, quoting Walker now, Even imaginary cabals could have real effects. While King Philip's wars raged, the fear of a vast Indian conspiracy, in one colonist's words, a universal combination of the Indians, had dreadful consequences for those natives who thought they had joined the colonist community. Here he's referring to the so-called praying Indians. Again, those who had adopted the religion of the colonists, though they were still treated as second-class citizens or worse. You'll recall that John Sassaman, the native whose murder kicked off the incidents that led to King Philip's war, was one of these praying Indians. Walker goes on to mention that in the midst of this war and with a mindset similar to, for example, the U.S. government's internment of Japanese Americans hundreds of years later, the colonial government, fearing sedition, rounded up the natives they actually controlled, i.e. these praying Indians, and interned them on an island where half of them starved, many others were enslaved, and still others were the target of colonial ire every time some non-praying Indians attacked a settlement. So from the very beginnings of the English colonization of North America, there was a strong strain of conspiracism, which our schismatic and rather paranoid Protestant forebears apparently brought with them from dear old Blighty. And as is always the case when the powerful get conspiracy-minded, the powerless suffered the brunt of it which brings us to maybe the most notorious flowering of conspiracism in the pre-U.S. period and the women who suffered for it. Of course, we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. We're not going to rehash the whole thing, as this is definitely one of those stories that everyone seems to have absorbed reasonably well from their high school history classes. But it's worth taking a moment to focus on the sheer degree to which the whole Michigas was predicated on and entirely driven by conspiracy thinking. In its broad outlines, the story involves a group of young women and girls who in 1692 had apparently pressured a local servant. Again, when you hear servant during this period, you should just assume that means enslaved person. Into sharing the religious rituals she had brought with her from Africa, resulting in a series of secret dances and incantations held in the woods in the middle of the night that just seemed tailor-made to terrify the fuck out of Puritan society. For comparative purposes, consider how freaked out middle-class, secular, 1990s white parents were by their kids' affection for gangster rap. 
Both the House and Senate held hearings in Washington, D.C. on the effects of violent and demeaning imagery in popular music, which sparked a heated debate over the influence of so-called gangster rap music. It coerces, influences, encourages, and motivates our youth to commit violent behavior, to use drugs and abuse women through demeaning sex acts. It ain't gonna do nothing. This might make a few white kids talk crazy. And that's good. Yeah, that, but like a lot more. So the girls, when caught, immediately started blaming anyone except themselves, including not only the poor servant, quote, unquote, whom you can imagine had little choice in the matter when a group of privileged white girls whose family literally owned her demanded that she show them how to cast love spells and the like. Ugh, white people. Am I right? Anyway, the accusations quickly spiraled out from there. Eventually, a court was convened, more than 150 people were accused, and 19 of them suffered judicial murder for imaginary crimes. It's important to remember that the best educated intellectuals of the time were all in favor of this turn of events. Walker quotes Cotton Mather, one of the most important religious and political figures of the period, spinning the Salem nonsense into an even broader plot against the virtuous English colonists. He even suggested that the attacks by the spirits of the invisible world originated among the Indians whose chief sagamores are well known unto some of our captives to have been horrid sorcerers and hellish conjurers, and as such conversed with demons. As you might expect, though, the early hysterical accusations by the teenagers interested in saving their own asses quickly turned into something else. Again, Walker. In their 1974 book, Salem Possessed, the social historians Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum made a strong case that the initial wave of accusations were closely correlated with long-standing local disputes over land, church politics, and the tensions between the agrarian Salem village and the more mercantile Salem town. Meanwhile, many accusations came wrapped in a long history of gossip, as old chatter about who might be a sorceress, a wife-beater, or a whore made it easier for certain citizens to fall under suspicion. So this was an absolutely horrendous episode in proto-American history. But unlike many similar episodes, at least the colonial society seemed to learn something from their mistakes. And as a result, they actually instituted some important reforms to ensure that similar travesties of justice couldn't transpire in the future. The most important of these was the banning of so-called spectral evidence. Dana, could you give us a quick explanation of what exactly we mean by spectral evidence? Well, Jesuit, as near as we can tell, spectral evidence is a practice of accepting, in a court of law, the dreams and visions of people who claim that they have been visited by one of a variety of supernatural entities. And what's the problem with this practice? What are you kidding? Uh... Kinda. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. I'm setting you up to spike the ball, unicorn. Go in for the kill. Oh, right. Okay. So, there are many obvious problems with spectral evidence. I mean, of course the main is that there is no way to verify or check this evidence against reality. In other words, there is no difference between one person's spectral evidence, a second person's self-serving lie, and a third person's earnest delusion. Another is that, in essence, there was no potential penalty for those who would give false spectral evidence— as their perjury could not, by definition, be proved for the reasons thus noted. So if, for example, and this definitely appears to have been the case in a variety of Salem accusations and even executions, somebody had a beef with her neighbor about a property boundary, she could then just suggest that she'd had a dream in which a ghostly phantasm that looked like her neighbor cursed a livestock, and that's why her most valuable milk cow died. And then the court would order that neighbor to be hanged. Wait, that can't be right, can it? I mean, essentially, yeah. It was. 
The good thing arising from the horrible thing with the Salem witch trials and the deaths of so many innocent people was that, as the hysteria grew, the authorities gradually came to realize that the sheer unfalsifiability of spectral evidence meant there were no limits to the people who could be accused via this method. For example, Mary Phipps, wife of the newly arrived governor, was accused of witchcraft based on spectral evidence, at which point the governor decided maybe everybody should take a spectral evidence timeout. A timeout that continues to this very day. Yeah, however fucked up our judicial system is, especially to black and brown people, it's thankfully tough to get your neighbor executed by testifying that you had a dream where they were having brunch with Beelzebub. That shit won't even fly in Arkansas. Okay, that covers the highlights of our conspiracy tour of the colonial period. Let's move on to cover the conspiracies that attended the South and its peculiar and abhorrent institution. I'm sure all of us who managed to get through high school history class are more than familiar with the fact that chattel slavery is our nation's single greatest sin and tragedy, and that in many ways it lies at the historical base of the American experiment. It's the dark heart of the engine that helped develop and drive our economy in its earliest days. It makes liars and hypocrites of some of our greatest ideals and statesmen, especially Thomas. All men are created equal, but let's just ignore the fact that I own many of my fellow creatures and periodically rape and impregnate some of them. Jefferson, but there are many others. You don't need us to recapitulate the horrendous stain that slavery has left on our culture, or the death, misery, and pain that it wrought throughout our history, up to and including the moment of national reckoning that we're in the midst of in the summer of 2020 as we record this. There are more qualified voices than ours to help you on that score. What we want to focus on here is the paranoia and conspiracy thinking that the brute fact of slavery seemed to engender in white Americans, both North and South. Obviously, we have to start with the part of the country that has served as shorthand for the deliberate policy of enslaving, terrorizing, murdering, disenfranchising, impoverishing, and generally being dicks to anyone whose skin tone is darker than Jeff Sessions. The South. The former Confederacy. Though based on some of what Jesuit saw growing up, that former is open to interpretation. A.K.A. Dixieland, where Jesuit was born in, early on one frosty morning. A few things to keep in mind as we delve into this topic. One. During the colonial era, as well as the pre-Civil War period, it wasn't just those we traditionally think of as the slave states where people were kept in human bondage. In fact, we're going to get in-depth into the horrific legacy of slavery in that Yankee bastion, New York City. Two. On the other hand, by the time the nation really started to come apart at the seams in the 1850s over the question of slavery, the states that allowed it had neatly sorted to the point that the nation could be split into slave and free using a single, hypothetical demarcation between North and South, the one created by two surveyors back in the 18th century, the famous Mason-Dixon line. Three. 
So, while it seems obvious that the threat of rebellions by enslaved people would have captured the lurid and guilty imaginations of any number of slaveholders across the nascent United States over the years, the mental real estate where these concepts took up the most space belonged unquestionably to the South's planter class. That is, of course, because these are the men and women, but let's face it, mostly men, who had constructed an entire economy completely predicated on the stolen labor of eventually millions of men, women, and children. And in order to facilitate that grotesque and monstrous crime over hundreds of years, these same people did everything in their power to ensure that they maintained sufficient political clout to keep the so-called peculiar institution going even as the opinion of the rest of the country became ever less hospitable to slavery. You may recall such staples of U.S. history tests as the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Kansas-Missouri Compromise, and even the decision that each state should have two senators. All of these were efforts to allay the fears of Southern planters, who were constantly concerned that their preferred way of life would be made illegal or obsolete by the democratic and demographic might of the urbanized, anti-slavery northern states. Not to dwell on this, but while there were significant and growing numbers of right-thinking individuals throughout the decades who were involved in the abolitionist cause, and they were scattered around the northern states, much of the anti-slavery sentiment came from working white people primarily concerned with the problem of competing economically against free labor, and who couldn't give two shits about the freedom of dark-skinned fellow humans. It's not the most idealistic rationale, but at least it meant they were coincidentally on the right side of history. Anyway, we of course did our research on this, but before we get to the books, and in acknowledgement of the unique moment we're in culturally, we wanted to take a quick opportunity to highlight a truly remarkable podcast series, first aired a few years ago, that really helped us understand exactly how central fear and control of the enslaved black population, and then eventually fear and control of the nominally free, but still horribly oppressed population of black Americans post-Civil War. Anyway, how central this will to control and subjugate people was to the decisions made across many aspects of American life. The show is called Seen on Radio, and the series is called Seeing White. The title gets at what's particularly interesting about this series' perspective. Instead of analyzing our history by saying, how were black people treated, it first asks the question, how did we get the concept of whiteness in the first place? What was whiteness designed to support or defend? We're not going to tread on the ground they covered so well here, but we offer a quick excerpt discussing the origins of affirmative action, not as a 20th century program to help African Americans, but instead as an 18th century plan to provide tangible benefits to white indentured servants in order to keep them from allying themselves with enslaved Africans against the landowning classes. Second day. I want to ask you, how many of you are in here familiar with affirmative action? Good. So just about everybody has some idea about affirmative action. Can we agree that affirmative action was an executive order legislation that was giving people of color access to institutional opportunities? Um, by race and included gender. Is that just sort of the you know sort of core component of affirmative action? Who knows when it was legislated around the decade? You don't know, have to have to know the exact year, but what decade was that legislated? Seventies. Everybody good with seventies? That would be the nineteen seventies. Would be the century. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're gonna go. We'll we'll go back and, and look at that in just a minute. She will return to question that premise. But for the moment, Dina goes on without missing a beat. 
How many of you are familiar with 40 acres and a mule? Who's familiar with that? Okay, so shortly after the Civil War, General Sherman signed an executive order allocating um, some land, 40 acres, to some formerly kidnapped and enslaved Africans in some places. And there's actually some documentation that there was some distribution of land, around 400,000 acres. Dina doesn't say this, but the implication seems clear. 40 acres and a mule could be called an early example of affirmative action or even reparations for the formerly enslaved African-American people, if only the government had made good on General Sherman's plan. What's less known is that was overturned a year later and most of what was distributed was confiscated and returned to the original white owners. 1705, are you familiar with a statute in Virginia that required masters to give white indentured servants 50 acres of land, 30 shillings, 10 bushels of corn, and a musket? Anybody heard of that? It seems most people in the room, myself included, have not heard of that. Unlike the 40 acres and a mule for black people freed from slavery 160 years later, this gift of land, cash, and food for freed white indentured servants is not overturned. You might remember 1705 is the same year the House of Burgesses passed the Virginia Slave Codes. Those laws locked in a brutal system of white supremacy by giving slave owners sweeping rights to control and even torture the African people they owned, and making it illegal for black people to employ white people. These two legislative moves, the slave codes and the payments for white indentured servants, drove a hard wedge between poor white and poor black people, who had sometimes joined forces against the white elite. Seriously, great show. Please check it out. Back to our topic. That is the overwhelming conspiracist bent that slavery drove in both its proponents and antagonists, at least among white people. Kerry Walters, in his book American Slave Revolts and Conspiracies, quotes historian Herbert Apthecker in estimating that, and we quote, North American slaves either overtly insurrected or conspired to rebel about 250 times. If you crunch the numbers, this means the entire period between the arrival of slaves in Virginia in 1619 and the end of legal slavery in 1865 averaged at least one rebellion per year. And given the urge by white slave-owning society to downplay these stories, thus avoiding encouraging other insurrections, the real number was, if anything, likely even larger. Depending on your age and the place where you were educated, you, like us, may have been given the impression that slaves accepted their lot in life or, in the even more horrifically distorted version, positively relished their carefree existence of toiling in manual labor until they died of exhaustion at the whims of an arbitrary and capricious pseudo-authority. That so many school kids had their heads filled with this bullshit is not an accident. Instead, it was the result of a deliberate effort by post-Civil War historians sympathetic to the Southern, i.e. white supremacist, cause, who conducted a nearly century-long campaign to excuse or glorify the Confederacy and its quote-unquote heroes. A campaign whose physical manifestations are all of those statues that are currently being rather abruptly decommissioned, by unofficial yet popular mandate. Around the country, protesters aren't waiting for cities and counties and are pulling down monuments to Confederate history, setting statues on fire and dragging others out of parks and public squares. The statue of Jefferson Davis was pulled down in Richmond. Walters, for example, quotes one Ulrich B. Phillips' 1918 book, American Negro Slavery, which described slaves as slow-witted children who would have been helpless without the paternalistic care of the white people who owned them. 
Where the fuck does this Phillips guy get off? I'm not sure. Uh, hopefully the bottom floor of the elevator to hell. But we digress. Phillips and his ilk base their hilariously biased accounts on the diaries and correspondence of the very slave owners who had a vested interest in supporting this halcyon view of slavery. After all, thanks to their brutal campaign preventing slaves from achieving literacy, theirs was the only perspective that could actually be written down. In more recent decades, as historians move past hagiography for the purported beauty of the whitewashed antebellum era, a very different picture emerged, one of constant resistance by the repressed. In addition to the numerous outright insurrections we just referenced, Walters mentions that most of the resistance came from telling the master what he wanted to hear while actually subverting his wishes. This tended to work because, though we'll see that white slave owners distrusted slaves generally and constantly worried they would rebel, these same men tended to believe their own enslaved people were loyal to them, their good and kind masters. Fucking cracker-ass crackers. Wait, can I, can I say that? I'm pretty sure both our lily-white asses are safe delivering that well-deserved epithet. Of course, the real fear that haunted the sleepless nights of the slave owners was the specter of open rebellion by those they enslaved. This fear was, as Walters notes, complicated by the mutually contradictory views of their human chattels that these people held. Specifically, that they were both cunning brutes capable of exerting murderous violence on their white masters at any moment, and at the same time, too ignorant and stupid to actually plan and execute this sort of open insurrection. More on this a little later, but students of the Third Reich, or, for that matter, listeners to our Protocols of the Elders of Zion episode, will recognize an echo of the Nazis' irreconcilable yet simultaneously held convictions. That Jews were mindless, rat-like vermin, on the one hand, and also brilliant, secret puppet masters controlling world events on the other. Conclusion. Racism makes you stupid. Of course, as we noted earlier, the planter class had good reason to fear the wrath of their African-American bondsmen and women. Walter's book is a chronicle of the frequently bloody reprisals that enslaved Americans wrought against the people and society that repressed them. Even the most impactful of these, like the one led by Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831, in which Turner, who seems to have been an intriguing combination of noble freedom fighter, Manson-esque Svengali of murderous acolytes, and apocalyptic Christian vision-having religious weirdo, led his followers to kill 60 white men, women, and children as part of his attempt to instigate Christ's imminent return, didn't succeed in changing the hideous conditions that defined the lives of enslaved African Americans during the period. But they sure did scare the living shit out of white people. In fact, Walters points out that Turner's rebellion actually led to the Virginia legislature debating, for more than two months, a slate of laws that would have led eventually to the elimination of slavery in the state. Quoting the book, His thinking was clear. If there were not slaves, there would be no threat of white citizens having their throats cut as they slept. Solid reasoning, we suppose. But what the few large-scale revolts that actually led to white bloodshed did, more than anything, was feed a growing strain of paranoia among the slaveholding classes, so that when other plots were uncovered, as in the case of the so-called Cheneyville Conspiracy in 1837, in which one Lou Cheney... We know it's weird that Lou Cheney, the slave, happened to be from Cheneyville, as if the town was named after him. But that's because his owner was one David Cheney, a descendant of the man who had founded the town in the interior of Louisiana, and it was custom to give enslaved people the last name of their owners. It just never gets less sickening referring to people as having 
owners, does it? It does not. But the story goes that Lou confessed to fomenting a plot with a number of his fellows to arm themselves and murder every white person on the bayou. Now, it appears from the best sources that the actual plan, which Lou Cheney did indeed initiate, was to gather food and arms and escape west and south toward Mexico, where slavery had been abolished in 1829. He got cold feet after his compatriots and he had already begun stockpiling arms and provisions. Cheney and co. knew that they might have to fight their way to the border, but apparently had no intention of creating unnecessary violence. He ended up confessing not only that his group was planning an escape, but he also falsely added that other stuff about a planned, widespread, whitey side. This more terrifying story found ready reception in the local slave owners, who no doubt had the memory of Turner's Rebellion still in their minds when they geared up a truly horrifying retribution for this uncommitted and in fact non-existent murder spree conspiracy. They kicked things off with some extrajudicial executions of those whom Lou Cheney fingered as members of the plot. Actually, I think the term for extrajudicial executions is lynching. Fair enough, but Walters notes that two other elements stirred things into a real frenzy. First, the suggestion by Cheney that his men were debating whether only to murder the white men or whether also to kill women and children, as Turner's men had. The second was the discovery that one of the slaves was carrying correspondence from Boston businessman Arthur Tappan, a prominent abolitionist. Walters again. That one of the arrested slaves had been in contact with Tappan convinced authorities that the plot to murder them in their sleep had been carefully crafted and financed by Northerners bent on destroying the institution of slavery. Quickly, nine slaves and three freedmen were lynched. Then a couple of the condemned confessed that their supposed conspiracy stretched all the way to New Orleans, leading the state government to declare a full-scale insurrection, dispatching troops to protect Nacogdoches, 55 miles away, from an imaginary uprising. In Alexandria, the nearest town of any size to Cheneyville, troops arrived soon, ostensibly to protect the white citizenry. They actually ended up protecting the enslaved from the enslavers, releasing most of those who had been crammed into the local jail, ending the mob mentality, and restoring law and order, much to the chagrin of some of the local vigilantes. Now, it wasn't just Southerners who were losing their minds over slavery conspiracies. For abolitionists and other Northerners who opposed the practice, though, the terms of the conspiracy were quite different. Thomas Conda tackles this topic in his book, Conspiracies of Conspiracies, where he establishes that, for the most part, the Yankees railing against the slave power had things essentially right. That is, the Southern planter class had, through various structures intrinsic to the Constitution and underpinnings of American government, managed to wield power out of all proportion to their state's populations. As noted earlier, this included the infamous decision to count each enslaved person as three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation in the Congress and for taxation, meaning, in essence, that the southern states, which of course didn't let slaves vote, got significantly more seats in the House of Representatives than they would have based on their free populations. Combined with the fact that each state gets two senators, regardless of its population, this had the effect of tilting the balance of power in favor of the Dixie slave owners. So there was, indeed, a slave power conspiracy, though it was pretty much out in the open for anyone who understood the workings of the federal government. As Conda notes, though, some took this further, trying to build a more robust worldview centered around the machinations of the enslavers. Episodes from American history were retrofitted to accommodate a belief that the slave power had long been operating behind the scenes. Making the most out of the commercial affinity between the South and Great Britain, the War of 1812 was reinterpreted with conspiratorial implications. 
This retrofitting was extended to the earliest years of the nation and to institutions such as the Bank of the United States, with the argument that the true purpose of the bank was to support slavery. Dramatic events such as the 1835 assassination attempt on President Andrew Jackson could be made to fit into the slave power conspiracy well. Of course, eventually, the entire question of slavery boiled over, leading to the state of affairs that obtained in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. In a 2020 cover article in the Venerable Atlantic, a publication that was actually around when that war started, described the situation in the South thus. Newspapers reported that the newly elected president, Abraham Lincoln, held a hatred of the South and its institutions that would cause him to use all the power at hand to destroy our country, and that his vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, was not only sympathetic to the plight of black Americans, but was himself part black. Warnings circulated in pamphlets and the press that an anti-slavery federal government would inspire a wave of violent slave revolts and then allow the South to burn, rather than stepping in to quell resistance. Texas Declaration of Succession asserted that northern abolitionists had for decades been sending emissaries to bring blood and carnage to our firesides. Georgias insisted that the avowed purpose of Republican leaders was to subvert our society and subject us not only to the loss of our poverty, but the destruction of ourselves, our wives and our children, and the desolation of our homes and our altars. Anna Necklison, the piece's author, notes with a nod toward our own conspiracy-addled times that when the richest, most prominent people, important officials, and major publications embrace conspiracy theories, all the while stamping out competing, more rational voices, well, in that case, the false narrative can become the foundation for a real regime. A scenario that, unfortunately, is all too familiar at the moment. To complete our look at the slavery conspiracies and how they connect with some other early American stupidity, we turn to a fascinating, horrific story, in which we discover the terror the slavers held for those they enslaved was widespread, and in fact perhaps reached its apotheosis in, of all places, New York City, way back in the 1740s. For this tale, we return to historian Jill Lepore, who already cataloged the damage of King Philip's War for us previously. In her excellent book, New York Burning, Liberty, Slavery, and Conspiracy in 18th Century Manhattan, she notes that in New York, in the middle of that century, one in every five people were enslaved, making it, in her memorable phrase, second only to Charleston, South Carolina, in a wretched calculus of urban unfreedom. Lepore reports how, in the early months of 1741, ten fires swept through the city, prompting a prominent resident to declare that the fires had been set on foot by some villainous confederacy of latent enemies amongst us. The suspicion of the city's white population immediately turned toward, you guessed it, the slaves. And you might expect you'd know what the result would be, but whatever you're thinking, the actual result was honestly worse than you could imagine. Quoting Lepore, Tried and convicted before the colony's Supreme Court, 13 black men were burned at the stake. Seventeen more were hanged, two of their dead bodies chained to posts not far from the Negro's burial ground, left to bloat and rot. One jailed man cut his own throat. Another eighty-four men and women were sold into yet more miserable, bone-crushing slavery in the Caribbean. Two white men and two white women, the alleged ringleaders, were hanged, one of them in chains. Seven more white men were pardoned on condition that they never set foot in New York again. As you might have guessed, the evidence that underpinned these horrific murders, suicides, enslavements, hangings, and exiles was, at best, tenuous. 
The confessions wrought from the accused came after long internment in horrific conditions, and they sound over the top, at least to our ears. And having for some time drank, they said to one another, Let's set fire to the town and kill the white people. Their owner's dead, the city in flames, the men who pledged to the plot were to assemble just north of the fort, into companies under their appointed captains, Ben, Jack, York, Dundee, and Othello, and burn their way up Broadway. It was horrid. It was monstrous. It was wicked. It was inhuman. But it was also hackneyed. What those 81 New Yorkers confessed to was a plot dripping with plot, ripe to bursting with familiar characters and contrivances. Kill the white people! Was there anything to this confession? As Lepore discusses in a lecture and reading, it's very hard to say. While we have incredibly detailed information about the white society that tried these people, we know next to nothing about the people themselves, or their lives, or their perspectives. The confessions are really corrupt kind of evidence. They, uh, these black men generally, most of them didn't speak English as a first language, so the confessions are translated, and almost none of them knew how to write. In the original confessions, none of them are signed or written in the handwriting of these guys who are confessing, right? So someone else is translating their words, and then someone else is writing their words down, and then they might, if they testify in any way, sign this document with an X. So from any kind of contemporary legal point of view, from some standard of evidence that we might have in a court of law, these confessions are worthless, absolutely worthless. From a historian's point of view, they're, they're also pretty worthless because they're so coerced. Except for the aforementioned heavily coerced confessions, we just don't know enough to say for sure. What had definitely happened was that a bunch of fires had started, a conspiracy by the slaves was suspected, and the suspicions of the authorities fell upon John Hewson, a poor white tavern keeper whose business was frequented by lower-class whites as well as slaves and freed blacks. Already in the authorities' sites for fencing stolen property, a crime he was very likely guilty of, an interrogation of his 16-year-old Irish servant girl led her to confess, under pressure, that Hewson had encouraged slaves to revolt, murder their masters, and burn down the town, the various fires being the proof of the seriousness of their aims. The involvement of Hewson was as it turns out, key to making the conspiracy cohere in the minds of white society. As we discussed earlier, the same men who would condemn so many slaves to death for plotting were also desperate to prove that the plot was the work of a white man, in order to maintain the cognitive dissonance that allowed the slave-owning society to at once say that the slaves among them were constantly conspiring and preparing to slit their masters' throats, but at the same time remain convinced that those same slaves were so intellectually inferior to their masters that they deserved to be enslaved, that it was for their own good, because they were incapable of handling their own affairs. In other words, they were cunning animals who would take any opportunity to engage their base lusts for power, murder, and rape, but they were too stupid to put together a plan without the guidance of a white man. Obviously, this is ridiculous, internally contradictory, and an absurd set of ideas to hold. A master might entrust the most complex affairs of his household to one of the men he's enslaved. And yet, also, he must, in order to excuse his own ownership of a fellow human being, consider this same super-competent enslaved man almost a child who must be guided by his master's attentive and firm hand. 
But if you're going to be so hideously immoral as to think slavery is okay, that is apparently the only option available to you. Lepore quotes the prosecuting attorney in one of the slave trials. Gentlemen, it cannot be imagined that these silly, unthinking creatures could of themselves have contrived and carried on so deep, so direful and destructive a scheme. The enslaved plotters were accused of planning to overthrow and slaughter white men before declaring one of their own governor and another a king. All of this happening during a series of drunken feasts where they met, swore oaths to the plot, kissed a sacred book, and discussed their strategy. Lepore notes that perhaps one reason why the lurid details of these seemingly coerced confessions were plausible to the upper-class, white, slave-owning New Yorkers of the time was precisely that these same white men who fancied themselves to be plotted against were almost all members of various gentlemen's clubs where extensive play-acting, heady oaths, rituals, and drunken nonsense were par for the course. The whole idea of the conspiracy may have been a sort of extended riff or parody of these all-white clubs. If this is true, then, as Lepore suggests, it may have started as something like a prank, but then gotten all out of proportion. Or perhaps there was indeed a plot of some kind, maybe even one in which some of the enslaved actually set a fire or two. Incidentally, if you're made to be a slave, it would seem perverse in the extreme not to expect you to harbor wishes to destroy the wealth and even the lives of those who enslave you, wouldn't it? But if it was a prank that got out of hand, that prank would have been a very specific sort of parody, a parody of a certain secret society that was already an obsession among conspiracy-minded colonials and would only become more so in the early United States. That society, of course was the Masons. We're not going to go in-depth on the history and impact of the Freemasons now, because we're going to devote the lion's share of our new 2021 content to the history of all the major secret societies that conspiracists have obsessed over throughout the ages, including the Illuminati, the Templars, the Rosicrucians, and many more. But definitely the Masons. He assures me that these shows are going to... Nope, I'm not going to read that. Um, Dana, we've talked about this. I write the scripts, you say the things, and the deal is you get all the funny lines, so please read it. No, I have some dignity. This is worse than when you made me do the Scottish accent for David Hume. Say it, Dana. No. Say it. Fine. He assures me that these shows are going to be amazing. <laughs> See? Hilarious. Fuck you, I quit. Thinks he can make me read any old bullshit he writes down? Worst fucking pun I've ever heard. A mason. What is wrong with him? He can do his own goddamn dulcet and European injections from now on. Or get a trained monkey or something. Goodbye and good riddance. Well, this took an unexpected turn. I'm really gonna miss her. Jeez. Oh shit, that's right. I just remembered that since I write all this nonsense, by extension, I wrote that little dust up, and so QED, I think I can get her back by typing, hey there, Jesuit. Jesuit. 
Just joking. joking. All, All is forgiven. forgiven. Glad, Glad to be part of the team. team. I love puns. Excellent. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. All of that amazing Ugh. content is coming your way next year. But we still have to pause a moment here to note that concern about the Masons' influence on the colonies and the young United States was widespread and deeply felt. Why? Well, that requires a bit of backstory. Remember way back in our first episode, we discussed the fact that conspiracy thinking was inextricably linked to the entire endeavor of revolution for the patriots and counter-revolution for the Tories, and that the Constitution itself was seen as a backstabbing power grab by the Federalists, at least in the opinion of the Anti-Federalists. In his book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, author Bernard Balin suggests that the colonists, separated from England and therefore the goings-on at Parliament by thousands of miles and weeks of time, were convinced by many local sources that their representative government was being undermined and subverted by sinister forces in the king's administration. Reading this material leads to the rather uncomfortable feeling, at least for those of us who are both Americans and inclined to align ourselves against whatever conspiracy theories are fanning the flames at any given moment, that a hypothetical 18th century, the old town crier edition of Ye Paranoid uh, Strain. I know you can't see them, but please trust that there is a bunch of extra E's in that title. Anyway, your humble narrator, and probably a lot of you, would be, for very good reasons, dismissing as bogus the same rumors and purported outrages that sparked many American colonists to take up arms against the motherland. That is, I think I would be inveighing against the same conspiracy theories that drove popular support for the revolution in the first place. We like to think we would be on the side of cooler heads. For example, Balin quotes a founding father, John Dickinson, an American patriot and also, obviously, a born anti-conspiracist, who ruefully reflects on how easily his fellow patriots could be stirred to furious reaction on the slimmest evidence against the king, that every little royal or parliamentary decision that might in and of itself not have had a huge impact on the colonies came to be seen as part of a system of oppression. Everyone, therefore, however small in itself, became alarming as an additional evidence of tyrannical designs. It was in vain for prudent and moderate men to insist that there was no necessity to abolish royalty. Nothing less than the utter destruction of the monarchy could satisfy those who had suffered and thought that they had reason to believe they always should suffer under it. The consequences of these mutual distrusts are well known. Similarly, Peter Van Schaak, a New Yorker, was well aware that Parliament and the Crown were running roughshod over the colonies, but he still realized many of the most inflammatory accusations and the deliberate conspiracy they were used to gin up were ill-founded. Most of them seem to have sprung out of particular occasions and are unconnected with each other. In short, I think those acts may have been passed without a preconcerted plan of enslaving us. The Tories, that is, those who remained loyal to the British crown even as the revolution erupted, also thought themselves beset on all sides by conspiracies, though of course theirs were coming from the other direction. One Thomas Hutchinson, who had been living in England since 1774, having left due to fears of reprisal for his loyalist views, wrote, Strictures upon the declaration of the Congress of Philadelphia to prove that if no taxes or duties had been laid upon the colonies, other pretenses would have been found for exception to the authority of Parliament. There were men in each of the principal colonies who had independence in view before any of those taxes were laid or proposed. Professions of loyalty and concessions were only intended to amuse the authority in England. 
And, as Balin notes, the idea that one side or the other during the Revolutionary War was actually just a cover for a sinister conspiracy didn't end with the American victory. The opposing sides just went from sloganeering to battling views of historiography. The 18th century was an age of ideology. The beliefs and fears expressed on one side of the revolutionary controversy were as sincere as those expressed on the other. As mentioned earlier... This suspicion on all sides continued through the period of the Constitutional Convention. Again, we covered this in episode one. Recently re-upped in the feed as part of our archive series. So we're not going deep here, but we did want to call out the uniquely vitriolic language Balin records from Samuel Bryan's 18-part Sentinel series in the Philadelphia Independent Gazetteer, a foaming diatribe against those harpies of power, the criminal conspirators against liberty who shield their secrets and tensions with the virtues of a Washington, blatantly lie to the public and shackle the press to suppress opposition. In fact, do anything, no matter how foul and vicious, to fob off on the people the most odious system of tyranny that was ever projected. Again, that's the Constitution. A many-headed hydra of despotism, whose complicated and various evils would be infinitely more oppressive and afflictive than the scourge of any single tyrant. Not that Bryant could identify those who were instigating this plot to enslave the free, mind you. But he did save special vitriol for Ben Franklin, who in his telling, hoodwinked the innocent Washington by inducing him to acquiesce in a system of despotism and villainy at which enlightened patriotism shudders. Poor Richard, indeed. Quick aside here. Didn't you just say that the whole revolutionary bit was an aside? Is this an aside to your aside? Yeah, unicorn, but don't get all weird about it. I just have to mention that there is, in our own superlatively weird and postmodern period, another group that believes that the American Revolution was in fact a vast conspiracy to gain popular support for a terrible cause. That cause being representative democracy. We might get back to this at some point, but we have to plead with you to look up the modern supporters of what is called the Dark Enlightenment, a movement dedicated to the reinstitution of benevolent monarchy, combined with a sort of corporate-friendly authoritarianism. Specifically, look up the endless screeds penned by one Curtis Yarvin, internet pen name, Mencius Moldbug, especially if you're interested in seeing just how far one overly educated, kinda alt-right friendly computer geek can go in defense of an idea so preposterous even the flat earthers would look askance at it. What's amazing about debunking the American Revolution is that now in 2020, nobody actually gives a shit about it. You can basically go and be in a bar and be like, man, the British were right, we should still be under King George III. And they'll be like, man, that's cool. It's so cool that you think that. Anyway, to get back to our brief tour of post-revolutionary anti-Masonic fervor, we turn once again to Thomas Conda's work, where he notes that this, perhaps the first truly American conspiracy theory, was born a few decades into the infancy of the New Republic. It all started in 1826, when William Morgan, a former Mason who had decided to publish a tell-all expose of his time in the Masons... Again, we'll go deep on these folks later, but for the moment, let's limit ourselves to noting that they are a secretive order to which a huge number of movers and shakers in colonial and early post-revolutionary society belonged, including John Hancock, Aaron Burr, Ben Franklin, and even Washington himself. Anyway, Morgan was apparently pissed that he wasn't accepted fully into the Masonic Order and threatened to reveal their secrets, at which point we'll let this charming, extremely local historian narrate what happened in the Batavia area of New York. Uh, if you don't let me into the Masons, I will publish your secrets. And uh, 
they said, well, you gotta do what you gotta do. And so William Morgan started publishing the secrets. Now the question is, if he was only went to a couple meetings, how did he already know the secrets? Well, they're not sure, but they really think that he plagiarized the ideas from a book that was released on uh, the Masonic Secrets that was released in England about two or three years beforehand. So William Morgan decides to publish these secrets. Uh, a few Masons here in Batavia, uh, a few overzealous Masons threatened him. Uh, they threatened him with bodily harm. They tried to burn down the printing press, the, uh, the, printing, uh, the print shop. The print shop was here in Batavia. You can kind of visualize where M&T Bank is today. That's where the print shop was. And then he's immediately re-arrested on the charge that he didn't pay, and, or he, he borrowed a tie uh, shirt and tie worth two dollars and sixty-one cents that he'd never returned. He's rearrested. He's thrown in jail. The jailer he's got to go off and do some business. The jailer's wife is there looking after the prisoners. A couple guys come up to say we want to pay Mr. Morgan's bail. Finally, the jailer's wife says, "Sure, go ahead." And William Morgan, his uh, bail is paid. He walks out. A couple guys grab him. He yells out, "Murder! Murder! Murder!" Yelled it three times. They throw him in the back of a carriage, and that's the last he's ever seen. The anti-Masons, what they say happened was they rode William Morgan out into the river, they, they uh, threw a chain, a chain around him, threw him overboard, and he drowned right there in the Niagara River. Nobody knows what actually happened. Regardless of what fate actually befell Morgan, he and his book were never heard from again, and as Condon notes, people understandably assumed he had been murdered by the Freemasons. The incident was seized on by people who already found Masonry suspicious, and by New York opponents of President Jackson himself a Freemason. Fostered by friendly newspaper publishers and by New York politician Thurlow Weed, the movement was quickly transformed into a political party, the Anti-Masonic Party, that became quite successful in New York, as well as in Vermont and Pennsylvania. Why then did anti-Mason sentiment find fertile ground in this area at this time? It appears per Conda that it all boiled down to the haves and have-nots. Specifically, all of the important movers and shakers in little towns throughout the young nation were emulating the example of leaders of the Revolution and the early Republic, who were disproportionately members of this secret society. In some sense, then, Masonic lodges had become the country clubs of their times. You know how the idea of a bunch of old white men running a small town via private discussions in golf foursomes at their country club really grinds the gears of all the cool fun people in classic movies like Caddyshack? Well, the anti-Masonic conspiracy was, if you'll follow a tortured analogy here for a moment, the Rodney Dangerfield to this coterie of conspiring swells, showing up in the middle of their cozy, well-to-do secret society and just given no respect, no respect at all. This is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. Hey, everybody, we're all gonna get late! Of course, the non-Masonic citizens were right to suspect the sweetheart deals and backroom shenanigans that were part and parcel of lodge meetings at that time, just as they are in any period when wealthy men and women... But, let's face it, mostly men get together to pal around, get drunk, and divvy up the town's or state's or nation's resources in a way that benefits their cronies. As is too often the case, though, the suspicious minds turn these reasonable worries into truly bizarre theories, casting the good old boys club of American Freemasonry as something vastly more sinister. Conda again. Freemasonry suddenly became one of the greatest evils that ever existed in any age or country. An engine of Satan, the fraternity of privilege had been transformed into a conspiracy of criminal anti-republicanism. As this rhetoric proliferated, paranoia flourished. 
Anti-Masons undertook surveillance of lodge members. Questions about licentiousness in the all-male lodges arose. Speculation about Masonic rites and oaths became increasingly blood-soaked and occultish. Temperance advocates took a dim view of drinking wine from human skulls. Still, Conda maintains, anti-Masonry was centered on a real phenomenon, that is, the domination of early American political and business classes by members of one secret society. And as the popularity of membership in the Masons wore off, the Fuhrer subsided. In his words, Accordingly, anti-Masonry is best thought of as a crusade with some conspiratorial thinking on its fringes. The same cannot be said, however, for the next conspiracy that swept the nation. The Anti-Catholic Conspiracy. Admittedly, this one hits close to home. The pseudonym isn't a completely whimsical concoction. I named myself Fearful Jesuit after an epithet aimed at a James Joyce character because I identified so much with that character's Catholic background and upbringing. So anti-Catholicism, though I grew up too late to really experience it, seems like a real punch in the dick to the affected. But did you know, Jesuit, that a major contributor to the anti-Catholic conspiracy feeling of the 1830s was actually the Telegraph? No, I did not, Dana, but that sounds fascinating. Please explain. Well, it isn't really connected. That's just a line that helps us introduce the prominent position that Samuel Morse, inventor of the telegraph, played in convincing his fellow white American Anglo-Saxon Protestant brethren that their entire way of life was threatened by popish hordes. But did he transmit those ideas via telegraph? I'm confused. No, the telegraph was just a way of introducing Morse. You know what? Forget the telegraph. Just get to the Samuel Morse stuff. Yes, um, it's true, if a little surprising, that such an anodyne and ubiquitous staple of elementary grade history classes as Samuel Morse, inventor of Morse code and the instrument that transmitted it, could have such a surprising and disturbing fixation. But Conda assures us that, under the name Brutus, Mr. Telegraph wrote, A fully-fledged conspiracy theory. In his 1835 Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States, complete with an organized hierarchy of manipulators behind the scenes. This conspiracist Morse was our kind of cat, doling out a plot so weird it incorporated not just the Pope, but also the Chancellor of the Austrian Empire and the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Francis I, with both Protestant Prussia and Orthodox Russia, which weren't exactly strongholds of pro-Catholic sentiment, apparently conspired with an international Catholic cabal against our uniquely American liberties, and their agents now organized every part of the country, from the most abject dolt that obeys the command of his priest and up through the Catholic hierarchy. We can take comfort, though, in the fact that this book was probably not that influential, because it took so much time to type it out in dots and dashes. For Christ's sake, have some dignity. Nah, man, we're good. But for real, lest you suppose I'm dredging up some long-forgotten misstep by a great American inventor, this stuff is still influential. Just listen to this anti-Catholic YouTube loon dole out Morse's pearls of wisdom on the topic of the Catholic Jesuit order. ...and despotism required their useful labors to resist the light of democratic liberty and the Pope Pius VII, simultaneously with the formation of the Holy Alliance, revived the order of the Jesuits in all their power. And do Americans need to be told what Jesuits are? They are a secret society, a sort of Masonic order, 
with super added features of revolting odiousness and a thousand times more dangerous. An order so skilled in all the arts of deception that even in Catholic countries, in Italy itself, it became intolerable and the people required its suppression. And that's from Samuel Morse. Of course, Morse was not alone back in the 1830s and 40s. Many writers were absolutely convinced that the hordes of Irish and other Catholic immigrants coming to the great Protestant Republic would blindly obey the orders of their priests and bishops and vote to, quoting here, decide our elections, perplex our policy, inflame and divide the nation, break the bond of our union, and throw down our free institutions. Conda also notes, Anti-Catholic organizations spread the fact that a Catholic-orchestrated run on the banks caused the panic of 1893, and they circulated a fraudulent papal encyclical, giving the date when Catholics should begin exterminating all heretics. And again, because this was a genuine conspiracy theory, unlike the previously discussed anti-Masonic fervor, it was like many other such theories, self-sustaining, because it insisted not only on the provable fact that there were more Catholics in America in the mid-19th century than was the case in previous eras, but also on the totally bogus idea that these Catholics were the tip of the spear of an international conspiracy to destroy Protestant America. Unfortunately, much as the QAnon conspiracy seems on the verge of doing in our period, pending the outcome of November's election. The anti-Catholic conspiracy eventually yielded a brand new political movement, one that is particularly aptly named. The Know-Nothings. Yeah, I get it. A bunch of conspiracy theorist anti-immigrant dumbfucks get together to do stupid shit, and they literally call themselves the Know-Nothings, as if blissfully unaware of how easy they would be to ridicule. It would be like the aforementioned QAnons eventually formed a political party called the Credulords, or boomers for drooling insanity, or the damn it, did you forget to give grandpa his pills again party. Which, of course, they still might. Anywho, the Know Nothing movement was actually named after the response that any member was supposed to give if asked about the group or its doings. That is, Sir, I know nothing. Longtime listeners will recognize this as being Socrates' favorite saying as well, but it's safe to presume the similarity ends there. So the Know Nothings emerged out of the discontent of working people, mostly in the North, who were squeezed by the changing economy brought on by railroads and increased competition. They misdirected their anger toward immigrants who were supposedly taking American jobs. Thank the card jobs! Thank the card Most of their ire was aimed at the Irish who were arriving in large numbers and whose seemingly exotic Catholic rituals struck the native-born white Protestant population as positively satanic. This was a worldview they had largely inherited from their Puritan forebears. As David Brian Davis puts it in Fear of Conspiracy, Protestants in a world divided by religious and ideological conflict. The American colonists inevitably looked upon the Catholic Church as a source of a worldwide conspiracy against liberty. They defined their own society as a purified and de-Romanized extension of England, and thus as the polar opposite of Catholic Europe. A thread which runs through much of the literature of counter-subversion is the argument that any threat to American Protestant is a threat to freedom, order, and morality. As you certainly might expect, this attitude eventually led to violence. 1844, in Brooklyn, a mob of white Protestant males calling themselves Native Americans marched towards St. Paul's Catholic Church on Court Street, intent on burning it to the ground. As they proceeded, their numbers increased to several hundred with shouts of, the church must come down, the church must be gutted, damn the Irish. 
When they arrived, a sizable group of Irish immigrants were waiting to defend it with bludgeons, axes, and rifles. But before they came to blows, Brooklyn's mayor called out the military and dispersed the crowds. From the 1830s to the 1850s, such scenes were duplicated in nearly every major American city where immigrants gathered in large numbers. But not all ended so peacefully. In Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, convents and churches were burned to the ground. From Kentucky to Maine, riots left Catholic immigrants and Protestant natives dead in the street. In short, anti-Catholicism had reached a fever pitch in American life, unseen before and perhaps since. Know-nothings tarred and feathered priests burned churches and led a full-scale riot in Kentucky. But just as importantly, these sentiments led to the creation of the American Party, also known, confusingly, as the Native American Party. We're sure the actual Native Americans got a real kick out of that name. Anyway, this ill-named group gained members when the Whig Party fell apart in the 1850s over slavery, nativism, and temperance. Oh yeah, if you needed another reason not to like these dudes, they hated booze. And while they scored massive gains in the 1854 congressional and state elections in the Northeast, all of it came undone by 1856, the rise of the Republican Party, and its focus on anti-slavery over nativist causes. Of course, the anti-Catholic sentiment continued, though it became more subterranean in our body politic. But it's worth remembering that even in 1960, candidate John Kennedy was expected pointedly to assure the American public that he would follow the Constitution of the United States and not the dictates of the Pope if he became president. No, no religious barrier. But because I am a Catholic, and no Catholic has ever been elected president, the real issues in this campaign have been obscured, perhaps deliberately, in some quarters less responsible than this. So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. The anti-Catholic sentiment faded over the 19th century, but by the early 20th, another obsession with an immigrant religious group had reared its ugly head to a degree never before seen in the U.S. You know what's coming, right? Yes, it's our old adversary, conspiracist anti-Semitism. But in an ironic twist, one of the chief promulgators of this poison during the pre-World War II period... When, you know, it might have been nice for Americans to get less anti-Jewish and more supportive of helping oppressed refugees fleeing the Nazi nightmare... ...was in fact the most famous Catholic priest in 1930s America. Apparently, he missed the history lesson on how religious bigotry and conspiracy thinking could impact an oppressed religious minority in America the way it had his own, the Catholics. Asshole. In all countries, Jews are in the minority. They have no nation of their own. They have no flag. The World Almanac states that there are only 15 million Jews in all the world, and only 4 million resident in North America. Certainly they are in the minority, but a closely woven minority in their racial tendencies. A powerful minority in their influence. A minority endowed with an aggressiveness, an initiative, which despite all obstacles, 
has carried their sons to the pinnacle of success. In journalism, in radio, in finance, in all the sciences and arts. Thus, with these facilities at their disposal, no story of persecution was ever told one half so well, one half so thoroughly, as the story of this $400 million reprisal which culminated a series of persecutions. Perhaps, may I resubmit, this is attributable to the fact that Jews, through their native ability, have risen to such high places in radio and in press and in finance. Perhaps this persecution is only the coincidental last straw which has broken the back of this generation's patience. Father Charles Coughlin was, in his time, one of the most famous people in America, thanks to the huge popularity of his regular radio broadcasts. Sure, there had been anti-Semitism oozing its noxious way around America throughout our history, with occasional flare-ups of violence, but the real spur to full-on anti-Jewish conspiracy lunacy was undoubtedly the influx of Ashkenazi Jews, that is, roughly, Jewish people from Eastern Europe and Russia as opposed to the Middle East, over the three decades from 1890 to the 1920s. Just as we saw with Irish Catholic immigration in the 19th century, this Jewish immigration wave both dug up existing prejudices and generated new conspiracies against the newcomers. We actually covered some of the most noxious results of this flowering of conspiracist hate in our second-ever episode, which discussed the notorious anti-Jewish conspiracy tract, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. As part of that show, we noted that, starting in the 1920s, legendary industrialist Henry Ford used his outsized influence on American society to spread horrific lies about the Jewish people and their supposed plan to take over the world and crush Christianity. Ford's efforts, which included publishing a conspiracist anti-Semitic newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, as well as famously including a copy of the Protocols for free with every purchase of a brand new Model T, certainly helped to stoke the fires of intolerance in the decade before the rise of the Nazis led a new rush of refugees to attempt to escape persecution. But while Ford may have ceded the ground in the 20s, Father Coughlin's immensely popular radio show made him perhaps the most important voice screaming about the perfidy and supposed communist menace posed by the Jews. Having started out as a priest with a genuine concern for the poor and downtrodden, he was initially a supporter of Roosevelt and the New Deal. But Coughlin rapidly soured on both, tying them into his dark, suspicious view of a world in which sinister money changers... Remember, money changers, which refers to a story in which Jesus drove a group of same from the temple in Jerusalem, is always code for money-hungry Jews. We're on the verge of subverting the American way of life and grinding us all under the heel of communism. Coughlin's outlook for both democracy and capitalism was also incredibly bleak. But fortunately, he saw for his beloved downtrodden white people a clear and perfect solution. Fascism. You mean he had fascist tendencies? No, I mean he thought the cure for America's ills was to scrap this democracy bullshit and opt for pure-D hardcore fascism. Like, he embraced Mussolini and Hitler, blamed the Jews for their own persecution, and suggested that, if anything, once he and those who followed him rose to power, the Jews would have it worse under his American brand than it did with the Austrian guy whose mustache made it look as if his nose had shit itself. We know he used that joke in a previous episode, but he is really proud of it, so let's cut into slack. I'm not kidding, by the way. Here's an actual quote from Father Douchebag himself. When we get through with the Jews in America, they'll think the treatment they received in Germany was nothing. That audio I included a bit earlier of Coughlin ranting about the Jews, that was him blaming Jewish people for Kristallnacht, 
the legendary night of terror in which Hitler's followers beat and murdered Jews, smashed their synagogues, and otherwise carried out a campaign of unmitigated violence. And he blamed the Jewish people for bringing this on themselves? I'm no Catholic, but couldn't someone above priest and below pope do something about this? Sure, but the problem was that Coughlin's bishop was a big fan of his hateful rhetoric, so he was simply allowed to drone on and on, stoking the vilest tendencies in his audience, convincing them that Jews were responsible for all the world's ills, etc. So how did they ever get rid of this motherfucker? Eventually, two things happened. The bishop who supported him died and was replaced by a new guy who didn't look so fondly on Coughlin's ranting. But perhaps more importantly, Coughlin continued his spittlefleck diatribes in favor of isolationism, that is, keeping America out of World War II, even after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which was not a popular stance at the time, but only after he'd done just a massive amount of damage to a huge number of innocent people. And with that, we're almost ready to get to our grand discussion of a real, true, honest-to-God conspiracy that really happened. But before we do, we just want to mention, in passing, a great observation by Michael Barkun in his book, A Culture of Conspiracy. Barkun notes that these anti-Masonic, anti-Semitic, and anti-Catholic narratives we've just discussed are so deeply embedded in American conspiracy culture that they continue, to this day, to pop up in the most unexpected places. For example, UFO conspiracists often reproduce the biases of 19th century American nativism, concentrating on the malevolence of the three groups that obsessed nativists at that time, Catholics, Freemasons, and Jews. So the conspiracists who deal exclusively with the idea that alien spacecrafts are visiting Earth, they still find a way to obsess over Jews, Masons, and Catholics. Well, presumably space Jews, space Catholics, and I'm going to say spacens? No. You already got your Mason pun. Let it go. Fair enough. But now, after our discussions of a number of historical conspiracy manias that span both the history and prehistory of the U.S., we hope it's painfully clear to all of you that there has never been a period when this country has not been in the grip of some lunacy or another. But now, it's time to jump beyond Father Coughlin another 35 years or so, to a period that's within the lifespan of some of those listening to this show, where we'll discuss one of our favorite paranoid conspiracy theorists of all time, the 37th President of the United States, and the trickiest dick you ever laid eyes on. Welcome, my friends, to Nixonland. That's not just an amazing name for the strange period in our nation's history, 1969 to the middle of 74, when Richard Milhouse Nixon was the chief executive of the United States. It's also the title of the second and perhaps finest of a remarkable series of books on the rise of the modern conservative era in American politics that have been written by the estimable Rick Perlstein. If you caught the end of the Archive series replay of our very first episode a month or so back, you will have heard a small section of the lengthy interview that Rick was kind enough to conduct with me over a couple of days around the beginning of the great 2020 lockdown. As we dive into the topic of Nixon, his uniquely paranoid worldview, and its impact on not only the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories and political discourse, but also the generation of one of the greatest true story conspiracies of modern history, the Watergate break-in and cover-up, Rick will be our touchstone, leading us through the strange times and even stranger mind of this remarkable, deeply odd man. To get us started, let's hear Rick talk us through how he came to see the 1960s, and more specifically, the conservative movement, as his particular niche as a historian. I've told the, the story many times in various interviews about how I was so obsessed with the 60s when I was kind of a teenager that I would misspent all my time in this 
giant ramshackle used book warehouse in Milwaukee called the Renaissance Bookstore looking for strange texts from the 1960s, you know, John Birch Society stuff, but also, you know, Black Panther stuff that spelled America with a KKK. And as I reflected more about that, I realized that it goes back even before that. I remember waking up early on Sunday mornings when I was a kid and being absolutely riveted by TV preachers, you know, these kind of crazy, southern, hyper-emotional, faith healer types. What really galvanized me, I think, was the extreme exoticism of these preachers who I shared a country with. You know, it's, it's almost like the exoticism you could experience going to a very remote land, <laughs> but here they are, fellow Americans. That, in addition to kind of arguing my liberal views with my parents' conservative views, views, you know, you kind of throw that into a gumbo. And I've always been obsessed with the 60s. And when I became uh, interested in the rise of conservatism in my own time, and then, you know, middle of the 1990s, with people like Newt Gingrich, found myself kind of converging on the Goldwater campaign as the place where uh, all this started, all this started coming together. This is like around the time when I was thinking about writing a history book when I was a magazine editor in New York. And so I just kind of started and made it my work. The editor of my first book told me that he finds people are often drawn to the time right before they were born, kind of the, the period that kind of shaped the world that they were born into. And I think that's certainly true with me. I was born in 1969. And as I became fascinated with the 1960s, I asked my parents, who, you know, had a small business in Milwaukee, you know, to tell me about the 60s. What was it like? And the story they told me is uh, about the time there were riots in Milwaukee, race riots in 1967. So they couldn't go into downtown. None of their friends could to work, to to go to their stores and things like that. So they had a pool party because they already had a pool. Right. So I kind of became interested in that kind of 1960s experience. That was definitely kind of Richard Nixon's people, you know, the people that stayed safe behind their, you know, white picket fences. Getting to the heart of our topic, as is usually the case when trying to come to grips with a figure as complex as Nixon, we have to start before his ascendancy to understand how dramatically different the political world looked at the beginning of the 60s than it did by the time Nixon won the presidency in 68. You didn't really think he would just start talking about Nixon without doing an overly detailed backstory, did you? Do you even know what show you're listening to? In his excellent first book, Before the Storm, Perlstein sketches the outlines of what at mid-century had come to be seen as the great American liberal consensus. That is, at that time, there was general agreement among intellectuals and what has come to be known as the chattering classes that, in a sense, America had solved all of the big problems of governing. Everyone, or at least everyone who was seen to matter, a point that will become very important in a moment. Yes, everyone who mattered agreed that the U.S. would, in keeping with its role as the dominant power in the free world, use its great economic might to build a gradually more just and equitable society, with Republicans and Democrats working together to construct government programs that would eventually defeat all of the problems that have bedeviled mankind since the dawn of time. Poverty, disease, racism. You remember, the stuff that we don't deal with anymore because they did such a great job eliminating them. Thanks, guys. 
And it's important to remember, this was not just some weird period where left-wing eggheads hypnotized the traditionally middle-of-the-road American voting public and forced them to support broadly redistributive policies. This was a belief that was held by groups we would normally consider natural allies of an anti-welfare state conservatism, like big business and most devoutly religious people. Why? Rick fills us in. It was a time in the late 1950s when... Barry Goldwater kind of started emerging really as a national figure and began to kind of attract the attention of people who wanted to draft a conservative for president in 1960, when Americans really thought that they had it all figured out. A famous example of this in the intellectual world was a book called The End of Ideology by Daniel Bell that came out around this time. And the idea was all the big fights about kind of distribution of resources that had vexed societies for thousands of years kind of had been solved by America and by the West, and the only political debates were around the margins. The people whose job it was to set the terms of reality believed that America was in the middle of this orderly, rational transition to kind of a welfare capitalist society in which job security and health insurance were part of what every American accepted as the government's role, that we didn't have the kind of Marxism or fascism that had so blotted, you know, the history of the world America came from, from Europe. You had people like Walter Lippmann, who was the kind of the towering pundit of the day. In fact, the guy for which the word pundit was invented by Time magazine, saying that America was more united and at peace with itself than at any time in its history. And this was the spring of 1963 when he said this. So it's really on the cusp of this profound period of disorder that we call the 60s. In case you don't recall why the spring of 1963 was a particularly bad time to be declaring the country to be united and at peace with itself, May we please direct you to the Assassinations JFK Edition episode in the podcast feed. Now, if Rick is correct, and, spoiler alert, he is, then how exactly did the parts of America that were neither united nor at peace with the great liberal consensus come to make themselves felt as early as the 1964 presidential election? If you're not familiar, in that election, conservatives managed to cause the Republican Party, which at the time was completely dominated by people whose views on social programs would today make them fairly liberal Democrats, to nominate a young, handsome, very conservative senator from Arizona, Barry Goldwater, whose primary claim to fame was being so utterly out of step with the consensus that he was kind of a figure of wonder, endlessly profiled by the mainstream press, like a black swan, or more appropriately, a white elephant. What happened, Rick? One of the things that all these pundits and experts didn't quite grasp was that all these parts of American life that they considered kind of vestiges of a past that was fast receding, i.e. things like Southern segregationism, people who own businesses who believed that their prerogative to run their businesses as they saw fit without government interference, were not really vanquished, right? Uh, they just didn't have many voices in the Northeastern establishment where this stuff was getting written and thought. That sort of condescension towards those very people was, in a sense, mobilizing of them. There were several things that came together in the middle of the 1950s that uh, made folks like this realize that 
they had to organize themselves politically. One, of course, was something like Brown versus the Board of Education, which galvanized a movement for massive resistance in the South that made a mockery of the idea that America was united and at peace with itself. People were being terrorized. School systems were shutting down rather than integrate in places like Virginia, just over the border from Washington, D.C. Basically, the great post-war accord between labor and management that reached this apotheosis with the contract between General Motors and the United Auto Workers that created guaranteed cost of living adjustments, that created health insurance for all the workers, that created unemployment insurance in times of layoff, which was seen as this inevitable piece of progress by the people who judged these things, was seen by the kind of people who didn't have the sort of resources of a General Motors, people who are smaller manufacturers in the Midwest and in the Southwest and the South, as an existential threat to their way of life. And uh, these were the people who kind of came together in coalition around a radio personality that I write about in great detail named Clarence Mannion, who had been the dean of the law school at Notre Dame and a right-wing Catholic. Here's a little taste of that radio host, Clarence Mannion, offering some very thoughtful words on how terrible this whole modern push for equality among races and sexes is. All the king's horses and all the king's laws cannot possibly make human nature identical. God has created them equal in his sight, and because we have followed this commandment of God, we have made them equal before the law. And in every other way, human nature has been and will continue to be unequal. Unequal in stature, unequal in intellect, unequal in incentive, unequal in achievement. And when you stop to realize this all-pervasive inequality that God has stamped upon each one of his personalities on earth, how absurd it is to talk about inequalities of complexion, inequalities of economic condition, inequalities that arise out of certain geographical locations. These inequalities are absurd because, of course, men and women are unequal in all respects. And they began thinking about how they could take either of the parties back, really. Their first idea was to draft Orville Faubus, the segregationist governor of Arkansas, who had become a hero to conservatives by fighting against the integration of Little Rock Central High, to draft him for president and get conservatives in the Democratic Party from the South and conservatives from the Republican Party in the North to bolt from their parties and form this third party which would have been this kind of Rube Goldberg contraption that never would have worked. And then they realized that there was this guy in Arizona, a senator who was elected in 1952 named Barry Goldwater, who thought exactly as they did and was extremely handsome and charismatic and so jet planes. And they realized that he was a wonderful vessel for this vision that they had. And they basically persuaded him to stay out of the way as they drafted a ghostwritten book under his name called Conscience of a Conservative. That became this shocking surprise hit, sold like, you know, a million copies, even though they expected it to basically be privately distributed by rich factory owners. That was a very strange kind of black swan occurrence. A lot of the people who were buying and embracing this book were college students who thought that the kind of liberal consensus that they had come to inherit was boring, existentially desiccating. In the same way that in a couple of years later, 
people on the new left would begin to think of the new liberal consensus. Conservatism was not seen as something that was the preserve of boring old men, but maybe this kind of rising wave, this exciting new thing. And that's a trope that kind of appears over and over again in the history of conservatism that, wow, isn't this this interesting paradox that young people are embracing conservatism? But basically, the kind of people who were in despair in the Republican Party, that the people running the party who had drafted Dwight D. Eisenhower for president were accepting the terms of the New Deal as the parameters of American politics, as indeed Dwight Eisenhower had. He said that people who opposed things like Social Security and unemployment insurance were crazy. They began to organize. They began to realize that the Republican Party, its institutions, were very weak, that it had become kind of a cult of personality around this very consensus-building figure, Dwight Eisenhower. And if they showed up at the war meetings and the precinct meetings and the counting meetings, they could be the ones who controlled the Republican Party. And they did this very stealthily. They mastered the rules. And kind of by the time the Republican establishment woke up in the middle of 1964, they pretty much had the whole thing wired behind Barry Goldwater, who emerged as the Republican nominee, even though most self-described Republicans didn't agree with many of his positions. Mannion's obsessions meshed nicely with another group of conspiracist reactionaries we covered in our recently archive-featured first episode, Robert Welch's John Birch Society. Both were absolutely convinced that the whole liberal consensus was just creeping communism, a problem that had obsessed the extreme right for decades, but especially since public revulsion had shut down the communist witch hunts of the 50s, which had been headed up by the legendary drunk Senator Joseph McCarthy. Well, so Mannion was a bircher. And a lot of the people associated with him, these kind of Midwest factory owners, were among the founders of the John Birch Society. One of the guys who went to the original John Birch Society was a guy named Charles Koch. He had a petroleum equipment company in Wichita, Kansas. And he loved the idea that the only reason America had turned from its birthright, which was small government, kind of local control of institutions, was the fact, as he believed it, that communists had infiltrated the American government. You know, this is all very continuous with the second Red Scare after World War II and McCarthy, which, you know, liberals had thought they defeated when McCarthy had, you know, soiled himself in the army investigation. It was censured by the Senate in 1954. And then he died in 1957. But for a lot of these guys, he was a hero. Charles Koch wrote a little pamphlet called A Businessman Looks at Politics, and it took a lot of signal right-wing obsessions. You can hear in uh, Edmund Burke's book on the French Revolution a terror about inflation, that when a, a currency becomes inflated, that's the way kind of the masses take over power from the elites. Charles Koch had the same fear as a lot of conservatives did, and the conspiracy theory that he spun in A Businessman Looks at Communism was that Harry Dexter White, who was a Treasury Department official, was a secret communist, and he had secretly stolen the plates to produce dollar bills, sent them to the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union circulated masses of greenbacks into the American economy to create an inflation that would weaken and destroy the will of American society from within. Now, of course, we know Charles Koch's name because his sons— the Koch brothers had this enormous role using dark money to try and move the Republican Party to the right in the 90s and the 2000s. But these were the kind of guys that started the John Birch Society, which was this 
organization whose leader, Robert Welch, was about as nutty in his conspiracy theories as you can believe. And the way he organized his thinking was that it wasn't conceivable that God's chosen nation, the United States of America, could possibly relinquish control of all these nations in Europe, like Poland and Latvia and all the rest, or China, were it not for these secret communist United States government. The idea that the Soviet Union had expended the lives of 20 million people defeating Hitler, so their armies were already there in Poland, and you didn't need secret communists for the Soviet Union to have a lot of control over what was happening in Poland was inconceivable to them. That was where the conspiracy theory was. He started this organization with this furious, insane energy. By 1961, managed to recruit tens of thousands of Americans who were basically willing to do anything at this guy's command. And people started noticing that all of the John Burke Society's obsessions were showing up in letters pages in newspapers, that people were showing up at PTA meetings and trying to take over local PTA to make sure that, you know, the liberal secular humanists didn't control the education system. Consensus Liberal America and its media organs kind of woke up to the John Burke Society very early in 1961 when John F. Kennedy was elected. Because just like when Barack Obama was elected in 2008 and became president in 2009, it turned out that there were millions of Americans who just didn't consider a liberal a legitimate governing partner in the United States. Now, of course, the long-term problem for a political movement that's built almost completely on the unshakable determination that communists were rife in the State Department, or that anything led by anyone to the left of Clarence Mannion was just a front for the international communist conspiracy. Which is to say, for the Birchers, virtually all major organizations in mainstream turn-of-the-century American life. Indeed. But the problem for this movement was, of course, that if it ever stopped the subversives who were destroying America, then it would destroy its own reason for existing. Or, as Perlstein put it in his first book, Politically, the philosophy lost when it won. If you remove the fear of subversion by catching subversives, you ended the fear that had brought you to power in the first place. Fortunately, the movement wasn't simply built on political opposition to communism, which would dissipate if you caught all of the mostly imaginary communists. It was also firmly founded on conspiracy-minded paranoia in general, to continue that quote. Although, of course, you could never catch all the subversives, for the conspiracy was a bottomless murk, a hall of mirrors that grew greater the more it was flushed out. One of the characteristics of right-wing thinking in general is that you kind of already know the answer. The intellectual process becomes a search for evidence that you know confirms what you already know. If there isn't evidence, well, that just only proves that the conspiracy is even more cunning than you thought because they've managed to hide their hand. But back to Goldwater. Here's a little clip from the Republican nominating convention of 1964. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Now, given the depths to which our current political moment has sunk rhetorically... Not that we're thinking of any politicians in particular. Well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. See this guy, oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. Grab him by the pussy. I can do anything. 
You could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. He's a war hero because he was captured. You may be shocked to learn that Goldwater's statement defending extremism in the defense of liberty was considered way beyond the pale for the mid-60s voting public, a group for whom consensus was so strongly felt that apparently any extreme view was an outrageous breach of decorum, even an avowedly pro-freedom message. We're pretty sure that Goldwater's sentiment would be too banal to even make it into a Toby Keith lyric at this point. Now, Goldwater held a bunch of positions that no modern-day politician would touch with a 10-foot pole, even including... Mr. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? For example, AUH2O was staunchly against civil rights legislation, like the same civil rights legislation that was absolutely required to even begin enforcing basic human rights for black people in the South at the time. Yeesh. Unlike most of the racist yahoos who also held this position, Goldwater was apparently genuine in opposing the legislation for what he thought of as deeply held non-racist convictions. Specifically, he thought that imposing civil rights on recalcitrant southern states was an unconstitutional arrogation of power to the federal government. A version of the states' rights argument we hear to this day when the government tries to enforce civil rights on a resistant local population. And I'm sure the fact that Goldwater had non-racist reasons for opposing this legislation was super comforting to African-Americans watching their avowedly racist neighbors in the South flock to Goldwater's campaign in 1964. Which gets precisely to the key problem for the Goldwater campaign. The senator himself, however extreme his views, was not a lunatic, racist, or conspiracy theorist. But his entire insurgent campaign was powered largely by forces like Clarence's Mannionites and Robert Welch's John Birchers, who most definitely were composed of racist, lunatic conspiracists of the purest race serene. The issue then was how to get all of the loons to exert their considerable manic energy on the task of supporting their conservative hero, while at the same time keeping them at a far enough remove from the senator that he wouldn't get flecks of crazy all over him. In fact, as Rick discusses, all respectable right-wing organizations that were working during this period were faced with the problem of what exactly to do with the conspiracist cranks in their movement, including the magazine that came to embody the mainstream success of conservatism, National Review. Marker 10. Well, this is it's, it's very interesting to look at the relationship between what's generally been called kind of the respectable right and the ultra-conservatives, because right around the time the John Birch Society and the people around it are getting their thing together. You also have William F. Buckley and his people getting their thing together and creating National Review. And National Review is this kind of New York-based organization, kind of in the belly of the establishment beast, that always defined itself as creating a conservatism that, as William F. Buckley put it, a politician can embrace without, quote, fear of embarrassment. Right. So the idea that there are lots of crazy people on the right and that we got to keep them out of our magazine was there kind of from the start. But, you know, the policies that their various ways of thinking led them to endorse were the same. It was very small government you know, against uh, the welfare state. It got a little tricky and complicated in foreign policy because a lot of the far right ultra conservatives came from a kind of isolationist perspective that a lot of the so-called mainstream right had rejected in favor of kind of a strong military presence that projected American power all over the world. But basically, these guys could get along in terms of policy. But if William F. Buckley's goal was to basically create a conservative politics that you could display to people like the New York Times and not have them cringe in horror, 
people like Robert Welch and the John Birch Society were a hindrance. Right now, actually, uh, I went to the American Historical Association Convention this past January, and there's a lot of interesting work being done demonstrating that this line was a lot more permeable than people had realized, again, between the conspiracist ultra right and the kind of respectable William F. Buckley rights. But it was seen very palpably by the people who were kind of running the Goldwater movement that if this guy could be dismissed as a conspiracist extremist, they couldn't possibly make it as a mainstream political movement. So it's all kinds of fascinating stuff you can see in the, the papers of the people involved in the Goldwater movement, trying to basically put their fingers in all these dikes. You know, some group in Arizona that's called, calling itself whatever, Americans for Goldwater or something like that, or Patriots for Goldwater, that believes that the Soviet Union has a plan to blow up all 50 state capitals on the same day. Right. What are you going to do with these guys? Well, you know, the extremists are the ones who knock on doors on Election Day and are so fanatical. And they're great to have in a campaign in making the president in 1964. They're called the the firebugs. They carry their light everywhere. So there's this very complicated dance in which uh, has been characteristic of the right a lot more than people appreciated until recently, in which the extremists and the people who are kind of the conservatives you can take home to mother have had uh, a very kind of complicated arm's length relationship, but, you know, often pursued on the part of the so-called mainstream with a lot of cynicism. For example, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan, or maybe it was one of his aides. There was a guy named John Russolo, who's a congressman, who was actually the publicist for the John Burke Society. He was one of the most important members of John Burke Society. And when Barry Goldwater ran for governor, he kind of had to distance himself publicly from the John Burke Society. He said, just because they support me doesn't mean they support them. But he told a friend once, John Russolo is great because he'll say he supports me if we want him to, or he can say he doesn't support me if we want him to. In other words, you know, kind of we can use him, but he's sophisticated enough to maintain a plausible deniability if that's what we want from him. So it's a, a very interesting, almost quantum physics-like <laughs> relationship, like Schrodinger's wingnut. So I know we promised to talk about Nixon here, and in just a moment we're going to, but it was important for our purposes to understand how the conservative movement in the 60s was faced on the one hand with a mainstream view that it was dead, or at least dying, and on the other with the fact that there was an unbelievably dedicated hardcore faction who were ready and willing to give their all for conservative causes, but that many of those folks believed completely insane conspiracist bullshit. Of course, Goldwater beat the odds to win the nomination in 64 and then went on to a historic loss against the incumbent Democrat, Lyndon B. Johnson. How big was this electoral creaming? Johnson won 61% of the vote, the highest percentage won by a presidential candidate since 1820. For comparison purposes, Obama's victory in 2008, which was considered a strong win, was carried with 53% of the vote. It didn't hurt that Johnson used the controversy over Goldwater's extremism in the Defense of Liberty quote we heard a little earlier to unleash one of the most devastatingly effective and politically dirty commercials ever aired. The infamous Daisy commercial begins with a little girl adorably miscounting flower petals, then her image suddenly freezes, the audio switches to an ominous countdown, and the whole thing culminates in a mushroom cloud. with a solemn Johnson starkly outlining the choices facing the United States in its then-ongoing Cold War with the Soviet Union. The obvious message? Choosing Goldwater's extremism is a highway to nuclear war. The ad was only aired once, 
but it was so controversial that it was endlessly replayed in news reports that reported on the controversy, a dirty trick that political advertisers follow to this very day. Consider, for example, the extent of the free media placement the comparatively small anti-Trump Lincoln project has received in the 2020 election by creating short pointed ads that create news coverage precisely because they were designed to gin up that very controversy. Obviously, in the wake of the 64 election, the conventional wisdom in New York and Washington was that this was finally the last gasp of reactionary conservatism. But then again, these same folks had already long ago predicted the demise of the political career of one Richard M. Nixon. And they were wrong about that, too. As Pearlstein's masterpiece Nixonland illustrates, between his mother's inability to recover from the death of one of his brothers when he was 12 and his father's cheapness, rigidity, and lack of warmth, the future president was probably doomed to have some sort of personality issues to deal with. And ooh, Lord, did he have personality issues. True enough. But in addition to a significant streak of paranoia, issues with rage, a near-total inability to connect to other human beings, and an almost comprehensive lack of moral fiber, he was also in many ways an extraordinary and capable person. He had a voracious intelligence, a preternatural ability to sense the winds of political change and bend them to his will, and a genuine vision for building a lasting global peace between nations. Although for every visit to China that marks him as a statesman of the First Order, there's an illegal bombing of Cambodia that marks him as a war criminal. But perhaps the signal element of Nixon's character was resentment. As Pearlstein puts it in Nixonland, Richard Nixon was a serial collector of resentments. He raged for what he could not have or control. Having grown up friendless and emotionally stunted, Pearlstein notes that the first time that Nixon's unique gifts for detecting and channeling his own resentments and the resentments of others was when he began attending Whittier College. The student body was run, socially, by a circle of swells who called themselves the Franklins, and the remainder of the student body, a historian noted, seemed resigned to its exclusion. So this most unfraternal of youth organized the remnant into a fraternity of his own. Franklin's were well-rounded, graceful, moved smoothly, talked slickly. Nixon's new club, the Orthogonians, was for the strivers, those not to the manner born, the commuter students, like him. He persuaded his fellows that reveling in one's unpolished was a nobility of its own. The Orthogonians' base was among Whittier's athletes, on the surface, jocks seemed natural Franklins, the big men on campus. But Nixon always had a gift for looking under social surfaces to see and exploit the subterranean truths that roiled underneath. It was an eminently Nixonian insight that on every sports team there are only a couple of stars, and that if you want to win the loyalty of the team for yourself, the surest, if least glamorous, strategy is to concentrate on the non-spectacular, silent majority. Nixon beat a Franklin for student body president. Looking back later, acquaintances marveled at the feat of this awkward, skinny kid the yearbook called a rather quiet chap about campus, doer and brooding, who couldn't even win a girlfriend, who attracted enemies, who seemed, a schoolmate recalled, the man least likely to succeed in politics. They hadn't learned what Nixon was learning. Being hated by the right people was no impediment to political success. The unpolished, after all, were everywhere in the majority. 
One thing that makes kind of Richard Nixon Richard Nixon is a certain kind of class resentment. Now, the word class is very complicated because the sort of people who are kind of in Richard Nixon's subaltern class that believe themselves to be oppressed are often quite affluent. Adelaide Stevenson joked that when Dwight Eisenhower became president, he says the new dealers have been replaced by the car dealers. This idea that urban cosmopolitan sophisticates from the Northeast are oppressing more traditionalist elites in the middle of the country or the West is kind of built into a lot of conservative thinking. And Richard Nixon is kind of a pure product of these kinds of resentments. He was this kid who always felt like he was looked down upon by the cool kids, so much so that he kind of creates his own social club in college called the Orthogonians, in which he kind of unites the uncool kids into a block that you know, kind of defeats the cool kids for the running the school. You know, they become the class presidents and all that. And that's really the template that he takes into his political career. He runs in 1946 against this guy named Jerry Voorhees, who's this New Deal liberal. He depicts him as basically this Eastern sophisticated snob who's looking down at the hardworking, striving suburbanites of California and manages to beat him in an upset. When he wins his Senate seat in uh, 1950, against Helen Gahagan Douglas, he makes much of the fact that Helen Gahagan Douglas's husband was this prominent Hollywood actor, kind of like the Hollywood elite argument of the day. And he really makes his name in Congress as a member of the House on American Activities Committee, taking on the ultimate Eastern cosmopolitan swell of the day, Alger Hiss, whose manners are impeccable, whose suits are perfect, whose English is practically Oxfordian in its sophistication. And He's saying these are the type of people who have made their common cause with the Soviet Union and infiltrated our government. Ah, yes, Alger Hiss. Before we let Rick continue, we think it's important to discuss this, which was the first moment after his election to Congress that the crafty, resentful Nixon rode the wave of a situation that truly gave him a name in national politics. It happened during the early days of the post-World War II Red Scare. That's the fear that the government had been infiltrated by communist spies and saboteurs working for the Kremlin. His was a government official who was denounced by a former communist named Whitaker Chambers. It's still not entirely clear whether or not Hiss was guilty. He served several years for perjury related to the case, but post-Soviet record searches indicates he didn't have a relationship with the KGB. Regardless, Nixon saw in the cultured, tailored, well-bred Hiss a perfect stalking horse for his own class resentments as well as the resentments of those he would eventually characterize as his silent majority. He gained a national profile through his withering and dogged pursuit of Hiss as a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee. The same committee that would make and then destroy the career of the aforementioned Joseph McCarthy. Yep, that's the one. Anyway, back to Rick, already in progress. His chamber's confrontation in which this loudish former communist Whitaker Chambers is really looked upon by the cultural elites as an embarrassment, someone who couldn't possibly have had anything to do with their hero, Elder Hiss, this you know product of Harvard, this person who was mentored by Felix Frankfurter. It was almost a clash of cultural absolutes. And Nixon kind of drafts himself as the hero of the people who feel put upon by Alger Hiss and their class. And forevermore, he's absolutely decided Eastern cosmopolitan swells who you know wouldn't let him get a job on Wall Street after he graduated from this kind of second tier law school had it in for him for the rest of his life. 
I mean, if you listen to the Nixon tapes, the White House tapes, he's obsessed with the idea that the liberals are out to get him because he took down Alger Hiss. He tells all his aides that the way that they're going to defeat Ellsberg and this conspiracy to leak all the government secrets is the same way that he took down Alger Hiss in 1947. His language around this is really indistinguishable from the kind of thing you'd see from the John Birch Society. Although he's such a disciplined person and he has such a good grasp of what it takes to make it politically, that this is the kind of stuff you'll only hear from Richard Nixon behind closed doors. He would never say this like, like Donald Trump would in a speech. Rick jumped us forward in time to the Watergate era there, which we'll be hitting on next time. But there's another moment in the early career of Nixon that we want to focus on, after he's chosen by then-candidate Dwight Eisenhower to run as vice president in 1952. We'll let let Rick introduce the situation. He was extremely disciplined in basically choosing his enemies, except when he wasn't, of course. A a perfect example is the famous checker speech, right? There's this newspaper article suggesting that he's kind of on the take from rich supporters. Eisenhower in 1952, he's, you know, Eisenhower's running mate. It was come out of nowhere. He's, you know, been a senator for two years, one year, actually. And he's chosen as Eisenhower's running mate. And Eisenhower's running on this anti-corruption platform. And basically, he tells Nixon he's going to go on TV. And the implication is he's going to go on TV and resign. And instead, Richard Nixon gives this classic performance in which he says that he's just this kind of poor, struggling, middle class man who just, you know, barely getting by. And they're going after me just like they want to go after you. And that the real snobs and swells are the people in the Democratic Party who are the party of, you know, the cultural aristocrats like Adlai Stevenson. And yet at the same time, he kind of lets slip this kind of very nice kind of rapier kind of cut against Eisenhower in which he basically implies that he has some dirt about Eisenhower that he drop unless they keep him on the ticket, right? I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat, but she does have a respectable Republican cloth coat. And I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat on the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. So, you know, he's a he's just a master tactician in that way. And he's always kind of keeping his powder dry. But in his heart of hearts, he really thinks that people who really run the society are out to get people like him. So Nixon schemes his way into staying on the Republican ticket, serves as vice president through both terms of Eisenhower's administration. Though the old general was widely known to have a distaste for his veep, a slight that you can bet resentment Milhouse Nixon would ruminate about for a long time. True, but the real, lifelong focal point of Nixon's resentment was about to coalesce around the family that would obsess him to the end of his days. Let the word go forth from this time and place 
Marge Simpson is a shoplifter. I'm pretty sure that was Mayor Crimby, but we get it. The Kennedys. Exactly. In 1960, in one of the closest elections in modern American history, the handsome scion of one of the nation's most patrician East Coast families squeaked a win over the hardscrabble son of Yorba Linda. Everybody knows about the famous Kennedy-Nixon debates. Where radio listeners thought Nixon won, while TV viewers just wanted to bathe in the radiance of Jack's steely gaze and vote him to whatever office he wanted if they could only wear his varsity jacket. It also didn't help that there are more than credible reports of voter fraud in Chicago and Texas, and that had Nixon won Illinois and Texas, that would have handed him the presidency. It is worth noting that for all of his conspiracist tendencies, resentment, and will to win, Nixon conceded before investigations of these accusations were complete, seeking to avoid a constitutional crisis. Something that we hope, but rather doubt, certain current presidents would be willing to do in a similar situation. Then, adding insult to injury, when Nixon decided to try instead for the highest executive job in California, running against incumbent Democrat Pat Brown in the 1962 gubernatorial election, he lost that one too. Which led to this famous moment, another indelible Nixon quote, and an assurance from the man himself that his political career was over. For 16 years, ever since the Hiss case, you've had a lot of fun. Uh... A lot of fun. Uh, you, you, you've, you've had an opportunity to, uh, to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now. Uh, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But of course, as we know, it had only gotten started. Before we plunge back into the story of Nixon's surprising comeback and, even more surprising, if, in retrospect, inevitable, downfall through Watergate, it's worth pausing a moment to answer a question that may be bothering some of you. Why are we, and for that matter, Rick Perlstein, so very obsessed with this guy? Dr. Johnson said, if you're uh, tired of London, you're tired of life. I mean, if you're tired of Nixon, you're tired of life. He really is this Shakespearean character. It's basically this palpable manifest brilliance, these flashes of humanity and empathy that he could exhibit bound up in this uh, absolutely kind of feral, dark, neurotic horror he has of himself and the world around him. Henry Kissinger said, can you imagine what this man could have been had he only been loved? And of course, he was loved. But, you know, it's just kind of like, who knows, you know, how we're going to sort out the strangeness of his upbringing with all these brothers of his falling to disease and super pious mother and this loudish kind of drunken father. And, you know, who knows how that works. But it's this ununited kind of ball of opposites that make up his character that will make him just endlessly fascinating and ultimately inscrutable. Yeah. What he said. In any case, if the 1968 election year hadn't been marred by the assassination of two major U.S. political figures within the span of two months, the most astonishing story of the year might have been Nixon's completely unexpected rise to the front of the Republican presidential field. In spite of that petulant, won't-have-Nixon-to-kick-around press conference, he licked his political wounds after his 1962 gubernatorial loss and smelled opportunity in the wake of the 64 Goldwater catastrophe and the upswell of conservatism in the Republican ranks. Not that Nixon was a conservative per se. 
he just knew that much of the energy behind the conservative movement was driven by resentment, and he was one of the all-time great artists when it came to channeling that emotion. As Pearlstein narrates, once he decided to run, Nixon spent his time wisely, demonstrating those once-in-a-generation political instincts, pretending that he had no ambitions beyond being the number one cheerleader for the Republican Party. He crisscrossed the country during the off-cycle election season of 66, seemingly stumping for any Republican who asked and doing his damnedest to get them elected, often against Democratic incumbents. But what contemporary observers didn't realize is that these shows of support were anything but random. Quoting Pearlstein, He received over a thousand speaking invitations per month. The ones he chose were triangulated with scientific precision. Nixon consistently showed up to support candidates running in traditionally Republican districts where Democrats had been elected during Johnson's enormous wave election in 64, when he creamed Goldwater by more than 20 percent. Now that Nixon saw the stirrings of a conservative backlash as the country's white middle class reacted with confusion and horror to the riots engendered in the wake of sweeping civil rights legislation passed only a couple of years before, he targeted challengers who were most likely to win whether Nixon showed up to support them or not, as those districts reverted to standard Republican-supporting form. Thus, Nixon was able to get some of the credit for each and every inevitable victory, emerging as a powerful force in the party. Or, to quote Pearlstein's memorable phrase, He could reap credit for making water flow downhill. Incredibly clever? Certainly. But that was just brilliant politics. Nothing actually distasteful. Lust for the big prize also made Nixon choose some far less forgivable tactics to turn the tide in his favor, especially when it came to the horrific, unwinnable war in Southeast Asia that America just kept getting more and more bogged down in. Our involvement in Vietnam was, of course, not Nixon's fault. Johnson certainly bears most of the blame for drastically increasing our commitment there, especially given his manipulation of the honest-to-God false flag incident... In the Gulf of Tonkin. See our false flag episode for more details. But Nixon, smelling Johnson's political blood in the water as the war became ever less popular and more politically divisive, engaged in some truly unforgivable actions to ensure the president's wounds would become mortal. Much of the Johnson Vietnam skullduggery was a sort of clever verbal jujitsu as Pearlstein chronicles. Ostensibly, Nixon gave interviews supporting the president's actions relating to the war while actually undercutting him at every rhetorical turn. He also claimed to have a secret plan that would allow him alone to win the peace in Vietnam. Who does that remind us of? I alone can fix it. I will restore law and order to our country. Seems familiar. Hmm. I'm sure it'll come to us eventually. But the most dastardly thing he did, long rumored but only confirmed by a researcher in the Nixon Library in 2017, was reach out to the South Vietnamese negotiators in the run-up to the election, deliberately spiking Johnson's peace negotiations by encouraging the South not to reach an accord with their North Vietnamese enemies until Nixon could win the election promising his new administration would negotiate a better peace. Hey, Jesuit. Dana? Isn't interfering in top-level negotiations between the U.S. and foreign powers during wartime considered treason? Yes. Yes, it is. But only if you get caught, apparently. Or if it doesn't work. But it did work. So he's elected in 68, winning narrowly in a plurality with Democrat Hubert Humphrey and third-party racist George Wallace. We don't have time to go into all the many highs and lows that attended Nixon's first term in office, but did want to take just a moment to let Rick walk us through exactly how unique a period of American life the Nixon years would represent. 
Please note that we take the Nixon years to include the stunted two-and-a-half-year Ford presidency. August 74 through January of 77. That would have been the final two years of Nixon's term had he not resigned, and which was largely taken up with dealing with the damage that Ford's predecessor had done to America, its stature, its respect for leaders and institutions, and even its self-image. By the way, Ford definitely didn't help that situation when, a month into his presidency, he elected to pardon Nixon for his many crimes, with no trial or even accounting of those misdeeds, much to the shock and anger of the American people. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Rick, talk to us about exactly how unsettling it was to be an American between 1968 and 1976. I have a friend who who tells me, like, you know, basically the, it was really fun being a student when Richard Nixon was president because you never had to take final exams because the schools were always going on on strike, you know, right in, right in spring, you know, to really set up what it was like to live in the United States in the late 1960s to late 1970s. You have to comprehend that when there was a worldwide depression, you know, in the early 1930s, a lot of the world fell to fascism. But America picked itself up and built the world's greatest army and defeated fascism. And the world's first mass middle class resulted from all this. You know, I like to say that in the years between 1945 and 1972, when America was just the apex of the world economy, you, you could, you know, kind of grow up having an outhouse and end up having a vacation house without even having a college degree. You know, you just kind of show up at the factory gate and, you know, working hard and playing by the rules. But while this is all going on, the whole system by the late 1960s is melting down because America enters into this war that spends down all this extraordinary store of moral capital it builds by defeating fascism and creating the world's first mass middle class. America loses its first war. You have a president who was caught on tape talking like a mafia don. Jill Wine Banks, who was uh, one of the Watergate prosecutors and just wrote her memoir of that time, said that the FBI employees, the women who were hired to transcribe the White House tapes, would just leave work every day sobbing because they couldn't believe what they were hearing. That was the kind of disillusionment they were dealing with, right? You had a nation that hadn't had a trade deficit since 1888, going from controlling like a third of the world's economy to something like half that by 1980. It's an extraordinary backdrop to all these cultural changes and violence and assassinations and the sort of things you can see if you, you know, watch any documentary about the 1960s and the 1970s. One of the things that's really important to understand about all this is on a kind of descriptive level, you have people who grew up being taught that America had it all figured out, you know, united and at peace with itself. All ideological conflicts have been put in the past and then kind of seeing all this unfold in front of their eyes. But you can also interpret it as the fact that all these conflicts that had always been present in American life and never really went away returned with a vengeance. You know, what happens when a relationship, when you pretend that the day-to-day stresses kind of aren't there and they kind of burst forth in screaming matches, right? That's what 
looks like in the 1970s. As Rick notes, this was an almost unprecedented era of dislocation in modern America. Yes, we're even including 2020 in that statement. But to get a better handle on just how weird it was to be an American waking up to life on an average day in Nixonland, we're going to quote the book, which lists a sampling of the weirdness that all happened around the beginning of 1971. In New York, vigilantes shouting, never again, the slogan of the Jewish Defense League, firebombed the office of a talent booker who handled Soviet acts. One secretary died. A cab driver in Queens rammed 50 welfare rights picketers, calling for affordable daycare. I have a wife and four kids to support, he cried before revving the accelerator. The Newark Boys Chorus School, 80% of whose students were black, moved into a three-story Georgian mansion in an upper-middle-class neighborhood. A homemade firebomb was tossed through a side window in September, doing no damage. A second attempt, over Thanksgiving, took out the entire top floor. Defiling school buses was a nationwide trend. Michigan was the vanguard. One hot evening just before the start of the school year, Two terrorists slipped inside a depot and lit dynamite atop the fuel tanks of six school buses. Thousands of townspeople rallied to the terrorist support, just as they used to do down south after lynchings. Pontiac is the new south, a state legislator said. I'm frankly ashamed to say right now that I am a citizen of this city. In Washington, D.C., feminist T. Grace Atkinson, speaking at Catholic University, speculated over whether the Blessed Virgin Mary had been knocked up, enraged. William F. Buckley's sister Patricia raced onto the stage and started assaulting her. In New Mexico, in the rugged town of Riodoso, the set the previous year for the John Wayne picture Chisholm, barefoot Nancy Crow Tapper and bearded Paul Edward Green, both of suburban Wheaton, Maryland, were a young couple living together without benefit of clergy. The town was well sick of hippies. Paul was arrested for falling afoul of Riodoso's rarely enforced 125-year-old lewd cohabitation law. The statutory punishment for a first offense was supposed to be a verbal warning. The judge, who displayed a sign on his office door reading, Judge Pritchett, the law west of the Rio Riodoso, gave him 30 days instead. Paul didn't take his confinement particularly seriously. When given a chance to call a lawyer, he allegedly ambled away from the jailhouse. The second of two warning shots caught him in the back of the head. They said the hippie was running, yet Green had recently been injured and could barely walk. Charges were never pressed against the officer. This was only the latest in an epidemic of hippie lynchings in New Mexico. The Federal Commissioner of Public Services reported 771 bomb threats in federal buildings in 1971 and 35 explosions. In January, police in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago defused bombs set in eight banks sent by a group calling itself the Movement for America. Mayor Daley held a press conference announcing the arrest of two college students, 19 and 18 years old, for conspiracy to poison Chicago's drinking water with a typhoid microorganism found in their house. Their plan had been to inoculate members of their group, which they called RISE, in order to survive and form a master race. That's a lot for mid-century middle America to process. The point being, by the time the 1972 election rolled around, much of the public was willing to stick with anyone who promised he could stem the tide of disorder that seemed to threaten all that these middle Americans held dear. As noted before, Richard Nixon had remarkable political instincts. And they told him there was a really large number of middle class read white people who just wanted everything to go back to normal. Normal being defined as white people running everything and minorities and women staying in their place. And while many of these folks were hollering at the top of their lungs and others were blowing up school buses, most of them were quiet. But there were really a lot of them, like a whole lot. Somebody should come up with a catchy name for this large group. So tonight... To you, the great silent majority 
of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. Anyway, these people were all solidly, if silently, behind Nixon, and he was also greatly helped by the fact that the Democratic field was in a state of almost complete disarray. Much of this was self-inflicted due to a series of events including questionable rule changes for the primaries in the wake of the disastrous riot-spawning conditions attending the Democratic Convention in 1968 in Chicago. But, as Rick makes very clear, the confusion and backstabbing that defined the Democratic primaries in 72 was also, thanks at least in part, to some serious skullduggery by Nixon partisans, which, by a commodious vicus of recirculation, brings us back to Watergate and environs. I'm almost positive you used that reference wrong. Leave me my Joyce illusions, please. See, the Nixon administration was, in a reflection of the pugilistic, resentful, conspiratorial, political, win-at-all-costs mentality of the man at the top, staffed extensively by people who saw dirty tricks as part and parcel of the way presidential politics was done. Many of these guys emerged from the notoriously bare-knuckle world of the college Republicans, an organization that, as Pearlstein ably chronicles, was responsible for fostering the careers of many of the more notorious operatives for the Nixon committee to re-elect the president. Which, yes, spells out the acronym CREEP, as literally everyone who's ever studied the subject has learned with incredulity. It would be the most ironic name of any group in this political conspiracy series, except, of course, that we already dealt with the anti-Catholic dumbfucks who christened themselves know-nothing. Indeed. The truly excellent All the President's Men film, based on the book of the same name by legendary Watergate reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in all their mid-70s feathered-haired glory, spends some time covering the visit that real-life Bernstein made to the college Republican alum who recruited others into the job of pulling dirty tricks on the Democrats throughout the primary. The objective? ensuring that chaos reigned, and thereby making Nixon look more statesmanlike by comparison. The actor portraying this real-life figure, lawyer Donald Segretti, lays out the whole scheme here after Hoffman's Bernstein flies to his California home to get to the bottom of all this. Horrendous. And what kind of stuff do you guys do then? Nickel and dime stuff. Uh, stuff. Stuff with a little wit attached to it. I mean, when you sit out on a musky stationery that... Senator Hubert Humphrey was going out with call girls. <laughs> Listen, if anything, it helped the man's image. <laughs> what, was the, what was the one on Muskie Stationery that you sent out that said that Scoop Jackson was having a bastard child? So sometimes it got up to a quarter, off the record. I think, the, I think one of the most interesting ones was a Canuck letter. What about it? Come on. Will you claim that Muskie slurred the Canadian? No, I didn't write that. Do you know who did? Carl, when you guys print it in the papers, then I'll know. Smart guy, Don. You know Don. I'm a lawyer, Carl. I'm a lawyer. I'm a good lawyer. And I'll probably wind up going to jail and being disbarred. And uh, I don't know we what I did that was so bad. Chapin. Who else was there? It was me, <clears throat> Dwight. Ziegler, all USC mafia. And that's when you got involved, you mean, in the student elections and we started to try to get your man in, so you stuffed ballot boxes and... <laughs> what was that term you guys used for screwing up the opposition? Rat fucking. That's right. And you were just doing the same kind of stuff when you were out campaigning for President Nixon. <laughs> Let me tell you something, we did a lot worse things in college. <laughs> Two points. 
first. Yes, they actually used the term rat-fucking to refer to the dirty tricks they were pulling on the Democrats. And second, in addition to a number of less famous political operatives, two of the most active college Republican rat-fuckers at the time were eventual George W. Bush strategist Karl Rove and recent convicted yet pardoned Trump-supporting felon Roger Stone, who literally has a tattoo of Nixon's face on his back. Sexy. Now, the obvious question to ask here is, why? Why did Nixon go to the trouble of building up an army of rat fuckers and command or allow them to do all of this rat fucking? Especially when he was a virtual lock for re-election given the above-mentioned political advantages leading up to 72. Well, probably the single biggest precipitating event leading to all of this rat fucking. You're just going to keep finding excuses to overuse that term, aren't you? Obvi. Anyway, what apparently drove Nixon into the deep end was the release in 1971 of the so-called Pentagon Papers, a top-secret report commissioned by the Pentagon to analyze the history and outlook for the Vietnam War. The report had concluded, in essence, that the war was, as everyone seemed already to know, a complete catastrophe, but also revealed what most people didn't know, that the U.S. was secretly and in violation of international law, bombing Cambodia and Laos, seeking to hit North Vietnamese forces who had crossed these borders. The report was leaked by a defense analyst named Daniel Ellsberg, who was prosecuted on espionage charges. But the incident also kicked the war between the Nixon administration, which again had never cared for the press. Recall that kick Nixon around press conference. And all of the nation's major newspapers, which one after the other took up the mantle of publishing sections of the papers as each was in turn sued by the administration and ordered to cease publication by the courts. Harkening back to Nixon's lifelong grudges, it's obvious how this set of events would play out in the man's twisted psyche. As noted in a gripping, multi-part, four-and-a-half-hour Watergate documentary that first aired in 2018, and which Jesuit somehow had no luck getting anyone in his house to watch with him. No accounting for taste, Unicorn. Anyway, this bit of narration sums the situation up nicely. The Pentagon Papers had everything to infuriate Nixon. They were published a year before Nixon faced re-election, and they were the result of an anti-war, Harvard-educated, East Coast Jew leaking secrets to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then the Supreme Court let them get away with it. The United States Supreme Court today ruled against the government and gave the New York Times and the Washington Post the right to resume publishing the secret Pentagon study on United States involvement in the war in Vietnam. Luckily, Nixon didn't take any of this personally and simply turned to other important matters of governance with no hard feelings or malice toward those he perceived as having embarrassed and weakened his presidency. Psych! Pearlstein describes how, on the night of the 1972 election, which he won by nearly as much of a landslide as Johnson had in 1964, Nixon still couldn't enjoy his victory. In his heart of hearts, he really thinks that people who really run the society are out to get people like him. You see this kind of fascinatingly 
you know, uh, on the Nixon tapes the night he wins the presidential election in 1972. You would think that he's thrilled. You would think that this is like the greatest accomplishment of his life. He's won 49 states. He's won 60 percent of the popular vote. And he listened to him talking on the phone and he's drunk and he's miserable. And he thinks that people are still out to get him. He still doesn't have enough power. His power is still provisional because, again, this conspiracy theory trope, the real power is kind of unseen, hidden hands that he believes are burrowed within the federal bureaucracy. He is absolutely obsessed that the federal bureaucracy, these kind of civil servants, they're filled with Kennedy loyalists. And he's asking who has pictures of John F. Kennedy still on their wall. Famously, he's having his aide, Fred Malik, count how many Jews are at the Department of Labor Statistics, right? It's very Trumpian, this idea that the unelected bureaucrats are this kind of hidden deep state out to get him. You know, just absolutely saturates his political thinking. Given this level of resentment and in the wake of the Pentagon Papers, and then all the way through the end of his self-doomed presidency, Nixon opted for all-out war, not only through Segretti's ratfuckers, but also through a new clandestine White House group called the Special Investigations Unit, but who quickly renamed themselves the Plumbers. Because they fix leaks. Get it? Makes his joke seem better by comparison, doesn't it? Exactly. Though, as you might expect for the Nixon White House, the group's mandate ended up covering far more than just identifying and stopping leaks to the press from administration insiders. Led by plumbers E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, the definition of plugging leaks from the White House expanded rather quickly and dramatically to encompass, for example, breaking into the office of the psychiatrist who treated Daniel Ellsberg. That's the Pentagon Papers leaker, recall. Infuriated by leaks to the media, Nixon orders Ehrlichman to create a secret White House organization to identify leakers and attack them, starting with Daniel Ellsberg. Nixon calls this team that he sets up a special investigations unit. They call themselves the plumbers. Break in, plant bugs, rifle files, infiltrate. Gordon Liddy, as part of the plumbers unit, is a screwball. He's a nutcase. He's a bumbler. He's a romantic. He is somebody who thought he was James Bond. He'd come up with a plan to break in Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office. Liddy and these Cuban-Americans, he's been able to arrange to help him through another White House aide, Howard Hunt. But they broke in. They find nothing in the files. They trash the place. They realize they got to get Liddy and Hunt out of the White House. And in classic Washington bureaucratic fashion, they're promoted to be somebody else's problem. And they're sent over to the committee to reelect the president to creep. We would be remiss if we didn't note here that the Ellsberg psychiatrist break-in, as well as the later and more famous Watergate DNC break-ins, were actually among the tamest things suggested by Liddy. First as a plumber, and then as an operative for creep. He's a man whose life story is so bizarre, it's actually worthy of a show in and of itself, but we'll limit ourselves to five quick, amazing-but-true facts that describe how weird this still-living human being is. One. Liddy has mentioned in numerous interviews, and apparently unapologetically, that as a frail, sickly boy born in 1930, his first hero was Adolf Hitler. Yes, you heard that correctly. In fact, let's quote the man from a 2004 interview about listening to Der Fuhrer on the radio in his youth. It made me feel a strength inside I had never known before. Hitler's sheer animal confidence and power of will entranced me. He sent an electric current through my body. Please don't make me read any more Hitler mash notes. No promises. Two. Liddy's party trick was holding his hand over an open flame until he was badly burned. 
This story first surfaced when related by Woodward's secret source, Deep Throat. Here's the quote from the book, All the President's Men. I was at a party once, and uh, Liddy put his hand over a candle, and he kept it there. He kept it right in the flame until his flesh was burned. Somebody said, what's the trick? And Liddy said, the trick is not minding. Three? Oh yeah, there's more. John Dean, the White House counsel and Watergate conspirator, who we'll discuss much more in a few minutes, recalls attending a meeting with the Attorney General, John Mitchell, at which Liddy laid out some of his more unorthodox plans. More unorthodox than breaking into a psychiatrist's office and then the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee? Yeah. Reuter calls me, would I come over to the meeting where Liddy presents his intelligence plans? And it's one of the more amazing meetings I was ever in in government. Liddy started talking about kidnapping anti-war leaders. He said, I have some men who will take these people off the street, take them below the Mexican border, drug them, and put them out of commission during the campaign. Dean didn't mention there that Liddy also had a plan to lure Democrats to a houseboat in Miami, then use prostitutes to seduce them into compromising positions, which of course Liddy's creeps would photograph for blackmail purposes. To his credit, Mitchell rejected this, but remember, all of these plans were given a fair hearing in the office of the goddamned Attorney General of the United States. Four? That's still not Liddy's craziest plan. He and Hunt admitted to plotting the assassination of Jack Anderson, a newspaper columnist whom Nixon hated. Their ideas recalled the insane CIA plots for Castro's murder back in the 60s. I.e., they literally suggested smearing LSD on the man's steering wheel so he would crash his car. Five? Last but not least, Dean reported that, in the wake of the Watergate burglar's arrest, Liddy volunteered to have himself assassinated, if necessary, for the good of the president and the administration. Holy shit. Yes. But back to the main story. After the psychiatrist's office break-in yielded nothing usable for discrediting Ellsberg, Liddy and Hunt put together a team to enact one of the less insane versions of Liddy's plans, approved by Mitchell, who was still, we must note, acting both as Attorney General of the U.S. and as the head of the creeps. This led to two break-ins of the Democratic National Committee offices in the Watergate Hotel in Washington. The first was a total failure, and on the second, they got caught. The whole thing was an amazing cock-up. A former CIA electronics expert, James McCord, was supposed to grease the skids for the burglars by taping all the doors in the stairwells on all floors of the building to keep them from locking. However, instead of taping them vertically, so you couldn't see the tape, he taped them horizontally, leading a security guard to notice, and he called the cops, who eventually busted the burglars in flagrante. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is housed in the fashionable Watergate complex. The break-in apparently planned well in advance. Police confiscated extensive photographic and electronic eavesdropping gear, as well as several thousand dollars in consecutively numbered bills. Each had several aliases. Four said they were from Miami. The fifth said he lived in the metropolitan Washington area. Three were originally from Cuba. Now, this whole operation was supposed to be kept quiet even after the arrest, because if they were caught, the burglars were presumed to refuse to talk, and then they would be sentenced to minor punishment, slaps on the wrist. But the judge wouldn't play ball, and when none of them would provide any testimony, he threatened all of them with serious jail time. So first McCord and then the other burglars started to talk. In addition to Liddy and Hunt, they fingered Jeb Magruder, former Creep Deputy Director, and John Dean, White House Counsel, as being behind the break-in. Dean turned out to be the linchpin of all the subsequent events. 
He was assigned to handle the cover-up within the White House, and so therefore he was the connecting tissue between the plumbers and those in the executive branch who were organizing the whole thing. Once Dean flipped, he delivered a barn burner of a testimony to the Congressional Committee investigating the break-in, which was highlighted by recounting a conversation in which he claimed Nixon told him they could acquire up to a million dollars to cover expenses for the Watergate burglars plus Lydian Hunt over the next four years. Which doesn't sound great in terms of Nixon's having no knowledge of the cover-up, which was the official White House stance. By the way, this was hardly the only astonishing revelation from Dean's testimony. When asked if he had anything else of relevance to testify to, Dean also revealed that Nixon had what came to be called an enemies list of perceived opponents of the administration whom they wanted to, and I quote, screw, using among other tactics, IRS audits. I'm talking about a literal printed list, which he provided. Here's a hilarious moment where CBS correspondent and broadcasting legend, the late Daniel Shore, reading from the list, finds a familiar name on it. At Common Cause, and it says a scandal would be most helpful here as a designation under him. Daniel Shore of the Columbia Broadcasting System in Washington. The note here is a real media enemy. Apparently you're not on the list, right? Well, that's all right. Nixon land is weird, right? Think how paranoid and conspiracy-minded the most powerful man in the world would have to be to put together a list like this and plot these petty revenges. Under pressure in 1973, with Dean's testimony the hottest thing on TV, how well did this little, tiny, relatively easy-to-cover-up conspiracy involving maybe a dozen or so people hold together? Not particularly well, honestly. By this point, Kissinger had secretly taped 15,000 phone calls. He later destroyed the tapes. Others were secretly taping each other, planting rumors, hiring criminal lawyers, and looking for new jobs. Today, in one of the most difficult decisions of my presidency, I accepted the resignations of two of my closest associates in the White House, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman. That same day, Nixon also fired John Dean, Attorney General Richard Kleindienst, and FBI Director L. Patrick Gray, replacing all of them with people untainted by Watergate. But fortunately, once Dean had finished testifying and after Nixon had lost his beloved Haldeman and Ehrlichman, it was clear the worst was over. I mean, it's not as if some no-name functionary would, under oath, reveal that Nixon had tied his own political noose or something. A Watergate committee investigator questioned an obscure White House official, Alexander Butterfield. Butterfield's answers were a huge surprise, and they suddenly revealed Nixon's biggest secret, something nobody had known, not Nixon's own staff, not Woodward and Bernstein, not the FBI, not the special prosecutor. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. As far as you know, did Mr. Ehrlichman or Mr. Dean know about the existence or the presence of those devices? That would be very unlikely. My guess is that they definitely did not know. One last question. If one were, therefore, to reconstruct the conversations at any particular date 
What would be the best way to reconstruct those conversations, Mr. Butterfield? Well, in the obvious manner, Mr. Dash, to obtain the tape and play it. Yeah, Nixon had taped himself. And even his own lawyer didn't know about it because Nixon lied to that lawyer's face about having any recordings. Ironically, of course, this conversation where Nixon insisted he didn't have tapes was taped. Okay, so the tapes don't look great. But now, of course, Nixon could just use this revelation to prove his innocence by releasing the tape of the conversation where Dean had claimed Nixon talked about how easy it would be to get a million dollars in hush money. When it turned out that Nixon said no such thing in that conversation, Dean would be disgraced and the whole thing would be over. I get the feeling that Nixon did not want to release these supposedly innocent tapes. He did not. But he had great reasons. Executive privilege, thinking of future president's need for candid advice in the Oval Office, etc. Nothing to do with saving his own bacon. No. Heaven forfend. And by the way, while all of this was going on, there was also a scramble to get a new vice president in place because Nixon's attack dog VP, Spiro Agnew, was under a completely unrelated investigation for taking bribes. Which he 100% was guilty of. And thus, the vice president was forced to resign in October of 73, even as the president was fighting for his political life. Which is how we got the unique situation where Gerald Ford, August 9th, 1974, became the only man to serve as president who had never even been elected to the Veep role. Once the tapes became public knowledge, it kind of all became inevitable. The grand jury demanded the tapes, Nixon refused, lost a court case, lost on appeal, eventually fired not only Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, but also both the Attorney General Elliot Richardson and his deputy, William Ruckelshaus. Because both of those gents had refused to fire Cox in the first place. And finally, in the wake of a national uproar over these authoritarian tactics, he handed over the tapes. And once we actually heard the million-dollar tape, it matched almost word-for-word what Dean had testified. I would say these people are going to cost a million dollars over the next uh, few years. You want the money, you need the money. I mean, you can get it. Well, I think that's where my Plus, we got to hear in another conversation Haldeman and Nixon discussing how they could use the CIA to lean on the FBI to make the investigation go away for the good of the country. Or, as it came to be known, the smoking gun tape. Finally, Nixon faced reality and resigned before he could be impeached. Ford became president, then pardoned his predecessor, so there was never even really an accounting of what had actually happened. But why, at long last, are we even talking about this? Uh, because you love Rick Perlstein's books and you're obsessed with Nixon. You already told him that. That statement is accurate, but incomplete. No, we're talking about this at length because this, my friends, listeners, and straniacs, is what a real honest-to-God political conspiracy looks like once it starts unraveling. Stupid mistakes, infighting, betrayals, cover-ups, double-dealing, petty squabbles, a scramble for illicit cash, a slow drip of revelations that brings the whole thing crashing down. 
This, among many other reasons, is why we maintain, in the face of an endless stream of conspiracists screaming their accusations into the void, that everything from 9-11 to the moon landing to the various 60s assassination conspiracies, they're all implausible on their faces because none of them looks remotely like Watergate. Where's the hush money? Where's the turncoat-turned-popular hero like John Dean? Where are the reporters who can make their lifelong reputations off of these stories? I mean, there was plenty of threatening and intimidation coming out of the Nixon White House against the Watergate investigators. Where are the threats from the same band of goons against the supposedly equally correct moon landing truthers? I mean, the landings were taking place during the Nixon presidency. Why hasn't anyone reported that he was ordered to drop his investigations into NASA's big lie by Haldeman or Ehrlichman? Who was threatened with even so much as a tax audit for his work exposing the moon hoax? Where's Deep Crater? The answer, of course, is he doesn't exist. Because there was no moon conspiracy, so nobody could break a huge story. No one could fuel his petty bureaucratic grievances by blabbing to reporters as a confidential source. Because unlike Watergate, this shit isn't true. So we've come to the end of our Nixon talk, but not quite to the end of our interview topics with Rick P., we still have to deal with the master fabulist who brought the conservative movement mainstream, a man who never met a conspiracy theory he didn't like, so long as it aligned with his pre-existing narrative of good guys and bad guys. And that man, Ronald Reagan, ended up with one big, fat, real-life conspiracy that for a moment threatened to take down his own administration. Ronald Reagan, 40th President of the United States, is also one of the most enigmatic figures in modern history. From his start as a handsome lifeguard with a penchant for larger-than-life, often self-aggrandizing stories, to his career as a B-list actor during Hollywood's Golden Age, to his mid-career reinvention as a conservative politician, and eventually governor and finally president, he always cut a figure of clear, unquestioning certitude. He was a man who recognized that in this world there is good, and there is evil, and the United States, and by extension, its favorite son, Ronald Wilson Reagan, was always on the side of right and good, because that's how God ordained it. But at the same time, he was, as a person, almost impossible to know deeply. Famously, his biographer, Edmund Wilson, author of the controversial kind of biography, Dutch, found it so impossible to understand what made Reagan tick in his heart of hearts that he abandoned the idea of traditional biography altogether and turned his book into a semi-fictional experiment that is, by most accounts, a complete mess. We haven't read it. But to get the flavor of what a strangely hollow figure Reagan cut personally, Morris noted, Nobody around him understood him. Every person I interviewed, almost without exception, eventually would say, You know, I never could really figure him out. Something no one would say, of course, about Nixon. And while Nixon is arguably the most important figure in Pearlstein's four-volume history of 20th century conservatism, Reagan is a close second. And in fact, the subject of his most recent book, Reaganland, is Reagan's victory over Jimmy Carter and the resulting apotheosis of the conservative movement. Which, remarkably, came only six years after Nixon's resignation seemed to send the Republican Party into a long-term tailspin. By the way, that book just came out this year and, as I'm sure Rick would be happy to have us remind you, is available from fine retailers everywhere. 
Nope, he is not paying us for the plug. We just love this guy's books. But if Reagan was personally a cipher to those who knew him best, his public legacy as a politician, and especially as a communicator, is unquestionable. His clear, black-and-white view of good and evil in the world, as well as his unflagging optimism, was counterpointed by the man's absolute obsession with warning everyone about the seemingly never-ending series of plots that were seeking to destroy America and her innocent citizens everywhere at all times. Rick helps us get into his mindset. Central to Ronald Reagan's conspiratorial thinking is that the forces arrayed against the good guys are all constructed as kind of alien to America, which is, you know, the epicenter of all that is good and true, right? Sure, he sees the world as this kind of Manichaean struggle between lightness and darkness. But yes, again, he said that his mom had a sense of optimism that that was as wide as the cosmos, and, you know, kind of so did he, right? He always believed that God's plan was written for America to end up on top. And he'd always talk about how uh, providential it was that we were kind of given this land. The colonists kind of landed on the eastern seaboard of this landmass that went on for 3,000 miles. And then it was kind of almost destined that we would kind of fill up the whole thing, which is a pretty nifty little (laughs) construction that doesn't quite help you understand the next couple hundred years of American history. And of course, the bad guys have an address, right? It's the Kremlin. So let's consider the 40th president, beginning with a quick biography. Reagan was born in 1911 to a highly religious mother and an alcoholic father, a different but not entirely dissimilar situation to the one that young Richard Nixon was born into two years later. However, if the men's beginnings were similarly humble, the personalities they developed as a result of their upbringings couldn't have been more different. Nixon, the cold, calculating nurturer of grudges, succeeded in politics in spite of being almost uniquely unlikable through sheer, unrelenting force of will. Reagan, on the other hand, was always the kind of person that others gravitated to, not least because of his combination of sunny disposition, facility with a joker story, and ability to tell self-aggrandizing anecdotes that somehow still sounded humble. In Invisible Bridge, the third of the Pearlstein opuses. Wait, is that right? Dictionary says it's either opuses or opera. Take your pick. Huh, that gives me an idea. Dana, how do you feel about singing the rest of your lines? Opuses it is. Regardless, given Reagan's fundamental unknowability, Pearlstein offers a great idea of how he developed his unique outlook. Starting out as a shy boy who disappeared into the background, during high school, Reagan underwent a total transformation, building his body through athletics and a job as a lifeguard and emerging as a handsome, prime physical specimen. But pretty people are a dime a dozen. What set Ron apart was how conscious he was, from a very young age, of the way he projected himself to people. A couple of clips from the audiobook help us illustrate. Here was a constant. If a camera was present, or an audience, he was aware of it. Aware, always, of the gaze of others. Reflecting on it, adjusting himself to it, inviting it. Modeling himself in his mind's eye, according to how he presented himself physically to others. Adjusting himself to be seen as he wished others to see him until the figure he cut became unmistakable. So unmistakable that in a caricature he drew of himself in his high school yearbook, he presents himself in silhouette, and yet he is immediately recognizable to us, even now, as Ronald Reagan. He had become a virtuoso of self-confidence, a maestro at staging ways to display his self-confidence. The performances gave him an outward glow. People began to follow him, envy him. They doubted, hesitated, feared. He did not. He graduated from high school transformed. 
So that was the physical transformation that made it possible for this hardscrabble youth to eventually travel from his home state of Illinois, out west, to become a middle-tier movie actor at the height of the studio system. But his personal projection and magnetism was the lesser part of his magic. The real gift that would propel his political career was his unique ability to communicate his vision, one that reduced complex, difficult, intractable issues into simple, straightforward, black-and-white morality tales. And the reason he was able to do this, Pearlstein suggests, is that while most awkward kids who construct elaborate fantasy worlds of good and evil, and Reagan was definitely that kind of kid, eventually moved beyond them, Reagan lived in those boyhood reveries forever and brought others along for the ride. The long-delayed realization that one's fantasies do not actually map reality can leave behind a wrecked grown-up more alienated, helpless, and terrified than he ever was before. Which is why most people, with greater or lesser degrees of success, simply grow out of it. But Ronald Reagan was not like the rest of us. He was, in this particular sense, a much, much stronger man. Perhaps it was that he worked out in the psychic gymnasium of boyhood fantasy with ten times the furious determination of an ordinary boy. Perhaps it was a more mysterious gift. However the outcome was achieved, it's not a controversial point to make. At turning complexity and confusion and doubt into simplicity and stout-heartedness and certainty, Ronald Reagan's power was simply awesome. As an athlete of the imagination, he was a Babe Ruth, a Jack Dempsey, a Red Grange. During his acting career, this gift of gab was mostly limited to chatting up starlets and schmoozing his way into the leadership of the Screen Actors Guild in the 40s and 50s. But the final piece of the Reagan puzzle was his dramatic shift from New Deal liberal to John Bircher-esque conservative. Pearlstein, like other historians, is somewhat baffled by this transformation. Soon, a slow, subtle ideological shift began stirring in Ronald Reagan's breast. By 1952, he was campaigning for Dwight Eisenhower, but also for a liberal senatorial candidate. By eight years later, however, he was about as far right as a public figure could be, writing a personal letter to the Republican presidential nominee, shouldn't someone tag Mr. Kennedy's bold new imaginative program with its proper age? Under the tousled boyish haircut, it is still old Karl Marx, first launched a century ago. There is nothing new in the idea of a government being big brother to us all. Hitler called his state socialism, and way before him it was benevolent monarchy. Delighted at the spectacle of this Hollywood star calling a centrist Democrat a commie, Nazi, and monarchist all at once, Richard Nixon issued a command to his staff, use him as a speaker wherever possible. He used to be liberal. The underlying moral logic was the same. He saw good guys. He saw bad guys. Only the identity of the two precisely changed places. How? It was a shift the complexity of which he himself was constitutionally unable to convincingly explain. He said that he hadn't changed, that the Democratic Party had. That made no sense. If anything, the Democratic Party, by the time he became a Republican, was more conservative than it had been in 1948. But in our conversation, he noted that even before Reagan's move from left to right, his light-versus-dark, happy conspiracist storyteller perspective was fully in place, even when he was stumping for Democrat Harry Truman in the 1948 election. Have you ever heard the, the speech he gave on the eve of the 1948 presidential election for Truman and uh, Hubert Humphrey? Rick encouraged us to look up the speech he gave for Truman because it is so illuminating. Even though it's weird to hear Reagan deploy his conspiracist bromides on behalf of a liberal instead of a conservative cause, the overall stance is definitely already there. This is Ronald Reagan speaking to you from Hollywood. You know me as a motion picture actor. But tonight I'm just a citizen. 
pretty concerned about the national election next month, and more than a little impatient with those promises the Republicans made before they got control of Congress a couple of years ago. The striking thing about it is his rhetoric, his rhetorical style is, you know, not in any way different. In fact, he even uh, makes up an unverifiable story about, you know, kind of a little allegory to kind of make his point, right? He's talking about inflation, which, of course, was a huge problem after World War II. And he tells a story about a guy who has, you know, savings are so eaten up by inflation that he goes back to work. The punchline is the guy's 92 years old or something. I have a pretty good set of databases to look at AP stories, and there's nothing. I can say with almost certitude that there was, you know, kind of no such story. So that sort of fantasism was there all the way in 1948. But another thing he talked about was um, inflation. I talk about Reagan's theory of inflation and how it was 180 degrees turned around from the story about inflation he had in 1948. But the similarity is that they're both conspiracy theories. It's not a matter of complex forces beyond anyone's control. It's that people want inflation intentionally. So in 1948, he says uh, the profits of corporations have doubled while workers' wages have increased only by one quarter. In other words, profit have gone up four times as much as wages. High prices have not been caused by high wages, but by bigger and bigger profits. And so in other words, that you know, corporations are kind of causing inflation. And then, you know, kind of by the late 70s, he's talking about it from a right perspective. And he says that federal government, you know, creates inflation intentionally and that the people responsible are liberal politicians who basically vote in cheap money in order to buy off the public and the bill comes due and they don't have to pay it. Right. So it's in both cases, inflation is you know caused by a conspiracy. It's not by this complex matrix of factors that are poorly understood. It's intentional. Regardless of the cause, by the early 60s, as we heard, he had wholeheartedly endorsed conservatism. For most of the 50s, the former Hollywood B-lister had become a household name as a GE employee and the host of the popular TV show General Electric Theater. By the early 60s, though, his increasingly strident anti-communist and ultra-conservative political activities had begun to make his corporate bosses nervous. Rick takes us through it. In my first book, I talk about Ronald Reagan, I talk about him as a fixture on the right-wing lecture circuit in which, you know, the kind of discourse that he's unspooling is really indistinguishable from the kind of thing John Birch Society members are saying at the same time. You know, as late as 1977, 1978, he's spouting off this quotation that's attributed to Lenin. We will take Eastern Europe, we'll organize the hordes of Asia, and then we will move into Latin America, and we want it to take the United States. It will fall into our outstretched hands like overripe fruit. Lenin never said that, but it's in the blue book of the John Burke Society. And you know, even on the wall of the Reagan Library in Simi Valley is this quote that's attributed to Lenin that also is made up, and it doesn't even really make sense because it's kind of referring to nuclear war. One of his um, General Electric Theater shows was about this woman who I think was maybe in the Communist Party and then she joined the FBI or something like that. And the striking thing about it was the way the show is presented, it's kind of staged like a like a leave it to beaver set, you know, so it's like it's like it's happening now, you know, even though the real story that this woman wrote a book about was, you know, in the 1940s when the Communist Party actually was active in the United States. This is kind of eternal return. The communists are kind of always on the verge of kind of taking over the country. Even in the 1960s, when there there was no Communist Party in the United States to speak of, 10,000 people and half of them were FBI agents. 
he talks about how communists had infiltrated this union that was involved in a jurisdictional strike in Hollywood in the 1940s when he was the head of the Screen Actors Guild. Even the guy who was the head of the other union that he was basically supporting said, no, there were no communists at all. But he was absolutely convinced. And because he was absolutely convinced and never would shut up about it, a lot of people still talk about this. So that was actually the case, that this union was actually part of a movement to try to take over Hollywood to insinuate communist propaganda into Hollywood movies. But the final straw came when he started attacking President Jack Kennedy's plan for what eventually became Medicare. One of John F. Kennedy's campaign promises was to expand Social Security to include medical care for the aged, what became Medicare. The American Medical Association, which he had a connection to because his father-in-law, Loyal Davis, was this very prominent head of surgery at Northwestern University and very right wing also, was adamantly opposed to this socialized medicine. So he was hired by the AMA, basically the spokesman of their campaign against this. So he recorded a record album that was designed to be played at kind of coffee clutches that I guess doctors wives would organize, right? They'd have little parties, little Tupperware parties, and they'd play this record of Ronald Reagan giving this speech. It was called Operation Coffee Cup. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. Now, the American people, if you put it to them about socialized medicine and gave them a chance to choose, would unhesitatingly vote against it. We had an example of this under the Truman administration. It was proposed that we have a compulsory health insurance program for all people in the United States, and, of course, the American people unhesitatingly rejected this. Write those letters now, call your friends, and tell them to write them. If you don't, this program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. And behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country. Until, one day, as Norman Thomas said, we will awake to find that we have socialism. And if you don't do this, and if I don't do it, one of these days, you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. It's worth noting here that this sort of conservative and establishment hand-wringing about some new social program or other has been going on throughout the 20th century. Take, for example, Social Security. This sort of rhetoric, of course, is absolutely fundamental to reactionary politics going back forever. If you look at Arthur Schlesinger's book on the New Deal, his section about the passage of Social Security has all these amazing quotes about what people said about Social Security, that, you know, if People are going to be have numbers tattooed on their arms. America will be a slave state. Policies that become completely taken for granted and come to be defended by conservatives are framed at their onset as apocalyptic. It's almost like a template of how conservative thought works. By the way, keep those quotes and characterizations you just heard about Reagan and Medicare in mind. We'll come back to them shortly. So Reagan's bosses at GE sever ties with him in the early 60s, which is also around the time that his shtick comes to the attention of the then-ascendant ultra-conservative Goldwater campaign. They see in Reagan an unabashed and highly effective mouthpiece for the kind of ideals their campaign believes in, and buy him a half hour of prime TV time to deliver a version of his Just a Few Years Left or We'll Be Telling Our Kids What Liberty Used to Be speech on behalf of the candidate. 
Influential Washington Post columnist David Broder called it the most successful political debut since William Jennings Bryan. And when Goldwater was walloped a couple of weeks later, in the election, conservative donors turned their attention to a new rising star, the formerly liberal actor who made their policies sound so good. From there, the genial conspiracy theorist was on a rocket to the top of conservative politics, capturing the California governorship in 1966 and surprising virtually everyone by turning out to be a reasonably effective, almost middle-of-the-road governor. The shock for his skeptics was simply this, that the anti-government supposed incompetent actually governed. Amazingly enough, Newsweek reported upon completion of his first hundred days, the host of Death Valley Days has managed to close one of the widest credibility gaps any politician ever faced. And after he left office in 1975, the post-mortems from the guardians of elite discourse were much the same. Elizabeth Drew wrote in The New Yorker that he was a reasonably competent governor of California and that his administration was more progressive than his political rhetoric suggested. Richard Reeves observed that he had proved himself passive, moderate, and moderately effective at providing big government as usual. They were not wrong. As governor, Reagan consistently proposed just the sort of conservative policies he had campaigned on, most controversially, immediately upon his ascension, a 10% across-the-board cut in the budgets of every state department. And when passage of radical notions like this proved impractical, indiscriminate 10% cuts turned out to be a novice's fantasy, given that much of the state budget was hemmed in by federal and state statutes he had no power to change, he changed course, moved on, learned, and adjusted gladly dropping right-wing orthodoxy when more pragmatic solutions presented themselves. Of course, that middle-of-the-road thing applied only to the general drift of the state's policies under his administration. He was also known for his hardline stances against student demonstrators and other demonstrations of unrest that were unfolding in California's universities during his administration. He was re-elected, but then decided not to seek a third term in 1974, which paved the way for his first presidential run in 1976 during which he nearly took the Republican nomination from the incumbent, good-natured, actually moderate, Jerry Ford. Finally, in 1980, he secured the nomination and went up against incumbent Democrat Jimmy Carter for the big prize. And in a normal world, that's the point where all of the conspiracy theorizing would have come back to haunt him. After all, this was the man who started out in politics by claiming that one of the most successful and popular government programs of all time, Medicare, was the first step on the road to the complete loss of freedom and a communist takeover of the United States. Jimmy Carter knew it and was ready to pounce during the debate. And that worked, right? Everyone realized the Republican nominee was, friendly demeanor or no, prone to absolutely crazy conspiracy theorizing of the First Order? Well, not exactly. I've interviewed aides to Jimmy Carter who were absolutely convinced that all they need to do to get this election in the bag was have President Carter standing on stage next to Ronald Reagan in a debate. And of course, he would come off sounding like an adult lunatic. So Jimmy Carter is loaded for bear. And he, he says this guy started his political career by organizing against Medicare, which is true. Governor Reagan, as a matter of fact, began his political career campaigning around this nation against Medicare. Now we have an opportunity to move toward national health insurance. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor? <laughs> There you go again. Ronald Reagan has a one-liner in response to that. He says, there you go again. And he delivers it with such guilelessness and with such charm that people start laughing at Jimmy Carter. And that's the kind of sound clip that's played over and over again that proves that Ronald Reagan won the debate. Now, the ironic thing about it is when he actually said that, 
and spun this absolutely absurd story uh, about how, no, he'd never been against Medicare. He was just against one version of Medicare. He preferred one bill to another, a completely made up story. When he said this, Rick Hertzberg, one of Jimmy Carter's speechwriters, said backstage, they were high-fiving. They're like, we won the election right there. Of course, he, he delivered this fantastical story with such charm and guilelessness that people thought that Jimmy Carter was being a jerk and victimizing this poor sweet man. He did so well in that debate, basically making stuff up, slip sliding around all the facts that Jimmy Carter had, that he ended up winning a landslide like five days later when the election was basically tied when they went into it. So Reagan is elected. And once again, while he is definitely an unapologetically conservative, he also proves willing to get things done, working with a Democratic House of Representatives and eventually a Democrat-controlled Senate to pass various sorts of legislation, including a historic round of tax cuts. It would also be unfair not to note that at the very least he proved himself, in spite of a lifetime of anti-communist fervor, up to the task of meeting Soviet Premier Gorbachev's overtures toward peace and cooperation with an open mind, in spite of accusations by conservatives at the time that he had sold them out. And for that reason, it seems like Reagan deserves significant credit for facilitating the gentle and largely peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, a singular and historic accomplishment. But now it's time for one big old however. Yeah, because while his attitude toward Glasnost was admirable, his administration also proved as willing as Nixon's to ignore and subvert the law of the land when it suited their foreign policy ideology. We are, of course, referring specifically to the mess that eventually came to be known as the Iran-Contra affair. We're not deep diving here, but you need a brief outline because it's complicated. After Iran's revolution and the taking of American hostages during the Carter administration, the U.S. banned arms sales to that Islamic Republic. Reagan, as Carter's successor, vowed to continue this policy. However, some in his administration were more concerned about Iran turning to the Soviets for arms and therefore drawing closer to our Cold War enemies than they were about shipping arms to a hostile Islamic theocracy. Ah, the Cold War. Indeed. So they were looking for an excuse to restart arms sales to keep the Iranians out of the red sphere of influence. Then along comes a complicated opportunity to exchange American armaments for the release of American hostages. Different hostages than those taken during the Carter administration. Who were being held by Hezbollah, the armed terrorist group that's backed by Iran. The idea was to use these secret arms shipments as a sort of twofer. We send arms to Israel, who in turn ensure they get to Iran. Iran then strongly urges their client, Hezbollah, to release the Americans. Plus, now the Iranians consider the U.S. a potential arms trading partner and turn away from the Ruskies. But things got even more complicated when Colonel Oliver North... You young people may know him better as a right-wing blowhard on radio and TV. ...decided to divert some of the money from the arms sales to Iran to fund the right-wing Contra force that was fighting the left-wing Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Which, as far as we know, is not located in the Middle East. No, it is not. But you see, the Congress had made it illegal for the U.S. government or any agency to fund the Contras, apparently fearing a repeat of the CIA's legendary, horrific involvement in fomenting revolutions and counter-revolutions everywhere from Iran itself in the 1950s to Chile in the early 70s. North decided that the secrecy of the Iran arms deal was the perfect cover to get some funds quietly into the hands of those same Contras. Congress schmungress. So, of course, because we're talking about this, you know the truth eventually came out. And while it became clear that Reagan had, at least at a high level, approved the ongoing arms sales to Iran through Israel, it was less clear whether or not he was aware of the arming of the Contras, which was the thing Congress was really pissed about. 
In the end, Reagan took responsibility in a speech on TV, but his reputation for laissez-faire management of the various intelligence agencies led to a general public opinion that while he should have known more, Reagan was far more likely to have ignored or overlooked the details than he was of being the mastermind behind the whole plot. In fact, the idea of Reagan being super competent instead of a power-delegating, distracted, hands-off executive is satirized in a Saturday Night Live sketch from the period which finds Phil Hartman playing for laughs a Reagan who's keeping all the balls in the air responsible for the whole scandal. And finally, Mr. President, about the Iran-Nicaraguan connection, some may wonder which was worse, your knowing or your not knowing. Well, all I can say is I didn't know. And well, we're trying to find out what happened because none of us know. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mr. President. Well, I hope I've answered your questions as best I could, given the very little that I know. (laughs) Goodbye and God bless you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you very much. Okay, get back in here. All right, let's get down to business. I'm only going to go through this once, so it's essential that you pay attention. One, Casey. Yes, sir. You'll spearhead our new operation to fund the Contras. The C-5As with the tow missiles and grenade launchers will leave for South Africa at 0800 hours. I want you to supervise the loading. Two, Regan. Yes, sir. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to resign. But first you'll make a public statement supporting me, which I wrote myself. It's over there on the word processor. Just key in and press file. The code name is. Oh, all right, I'll do it for you. Now, any questions? Yeah, those audience laughs tell the story. No one believed Reagan was mastermind rather than figurehead. And so Reagan got off easy, taking a big temporary popularity hit, but ending his second term widely liked by the voting public, while nearly a dozen members of his administration were convicted of crimes for their actions in the scandal. But why are we telling you about this? Because just as with Nixon, a conspiracy-believing leader comes to power and then generates just the sort of conspiracy that he imagined his enemies were guilty of in the first place. Wasn't the cold warrior mid-century Reagan worried about left-wingers subverting the government of the United States? And then he takes power and uses his right-wing operatives to do just that. So are you saying that conspiracy theorists who reach the presidency tend to generate major conspiracies themselves while in office? Well... Consider the other major scandals of recent years. Clinton's was not a conspiracy so much as him lying about sex. Bush's fallacious rationales for entering the Iraq war don't pass muster as a conspiracy either. He and Cheney appeared genuinely to believe that Iraq had WMDs, and in turn, obviously with motivated reasoning, believed the seemingly cooked intel that they used to fuel their foregone conclusions. If they were deceiving others, they were deceiving themselves first. And the Trump era did, as we illustrated in our recent quick hit, have at the helm a conspiracy theorist of the first order and did unquestionably show evidence of a major conspiracy by the president and his closest aides to manipulate foreign policy for personal political gain. The Ukraine scandal. We know he wasn't convicted for it, but there isn't any real question he was guilty of it and that he had plenty of help from other plotters in his administration, especially Rudy Nosferatu Giuliani. So we do seem three for three. The first and the most dour and pessimistic of the bunch was brought down by his willingness to go to the mat for keeping his own secrets. The second skated by on his own charm and reputation for general managerial incompetence. And the third just got handed his walking papers. It seems that in getting away with political conspiracies, as with anything else, attitude is everything. So as we bring this series to a close, we wanted to ask Rick one last question. 
What is Donald Trump in terms of the conspiracy tendencies of the conservative movement? Climax? Aberration? What? One way to think about Donald Trump in the context of the long sweep of conservative history in the United States is all the nastiness we see with him and his followers was always present. But it was something that politicians, Richard Nixon, as we discussed, being the absolute apogee of this, grasped that they had to kind of keep out of the limelight. And that's where you get the metaphor in terms of race the dog whistle. You tap into the feral, angry energies of the masses that elite is out to get them and that sort of conspiracy theories in all kinds of way, but you don't articulate them yourself. You know, you do it through code, you do it through surrogates. But, you know, the way we talk about Donald Trump is he took the dog whistle and turned it into a train whistle. So he surfaces that which was, you know, kind of below the surface and institutionalized it so that the most dignified bipartisan committee in Congress, which is the intelligence committees, which, you know, was basically set up as the only committee that doesn't matter which party's in charge is supposed to be basically operated on a bipartisan basis has become the most kind of politicized committee in terms of pursuing most feverish conspiracy theories, you know, the Burisma stuff, the missing server stuff, and it's been completely turned into the very structure by which Republican politics operates. And one by one, we see all these Republican, formerly respectable leaders, you know, the, the Grams and the rest, you know, kind of surrendering to this kinds of thinking. So, I mean, it's, it's like the, the tail has come to wag the dog. It's very terrifying. Sam Rayburn, you know, the famous House Speaker who was Lyndon Johnson's mentor said, you know, anyone can knock down a barn. It's easy to destroy something. It's hard to build something. But the Republican Party basing its appeal to the electorate on surrender to the most sub-rational re-enlightenment thinking. I don't know how you kind of come back from that in any kind of easy way. Jesus, Jesuit. Way to end this thing on a fucking bummer note, huh? Fair enough, but let's consider everything in the broad sweep of the history we've covered in this series. After all, what have we learned? We certainly saw that in every period since the first white colonists arrived, a sizable portion of our population has been gripped with fear that some percentage of their fellow Americans were plotting to destroy them and everything they care about. We've further seen that in the 20th century, we've been led by certain presidents of varying personalities and levels of coherence who are absolutely gripped by belief that events and enemies conspire against them. One of these people is, as of this recording, still president of the United States. For a couple of months, at least. And yet, in spite of that, look at what our country has accomplished. Not just man on the moon winning World War II stuff. Look at the culture and inventions and music and film and art and dance that we, including especially some of those most deeply impacted by their fellow Americans' catastrophic conspiracism, have created in the face of a constant undercurrent of screaming unreason. There's every reason to believe, no matter what crazy political conspiracy nonsense, QAnon or its successor, faces us in the future, that we'll be able to face it, work through it, and prevail, so long as the rest of us never give in to the paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Also, we'd love to have you sign up for our Facebook group. Just send us a request. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and are indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Hoss. Big Mucho put together our super-duper website and helps in ways big and small. And Willem UFO's pretty pictures are pretty as a picture. 
I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked the new, shorter format for this show over the past few months and are enjoying the stitched-together full-length version as well. Stick around for some additional musical bonuses after the theme song. We'll keep the content stream full for the next few months as we gear up for our major 2021 topic, Secret Societies. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
those motherfuckers. <laughs> okay. <coughs> I think that's it. Um, that's all the dulcet tones I have in me today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.